Thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase. I'm Josh, and we're here to bring you part four of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix today. We'll be covering chapters 19 through chapter 24, taking us through some really cool moments, uh, some big things that happen, talking about Christmas break, uh, talking about some dreams that come up, uh, just a lot of cool things that, that happen, not to mention uh, we have a new Quidditch player that we mentioned last week, and he has his first uh, game, and we're going to see how that goes. Harry takes some new lessons, so stay tuned for all of that coming up here shortly. Wanted to take some time and say thank you again for joining us last week and all the weeks that you do join us. So, uh, Chase, go ahead and take it away and uh, give us a little bit of what you got over there. Yeah, man. First of all, we haven't had Quidditch in a long time, so welcome back to Quidditch, baby. That's It's uh, been a whole book, basically. <laughs> We've missed that bad boy. So, uh, yeah, really cool stuff. I mean, it, it really kicks off in this chapters we're going to be taking away as far as, you know, just really, I guess, high octane, you can say, like spreading on the nitrous oxide, just like Paul Walker did against Vin Diesel, man. Like, we're starting out at a full go here in a Quidditch game. Uh, so that's pretty pretty sick. And um, But once again, guys, thanks again for all you do for us. Uh, you know, we just keep shooting up there in the numbers. And uh, thanks for always following us, giving us a subscribe, hitting that uh, like button on YouTube, or writing us a review. Always means a lot to us. Uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and uh, kick us off here. And uh, so we ended last time. Well, just to kind of give a quick little backstory about where we left off. Uh, the last week we kind of went through, uh, Hermione come up with a pretty cool idea of learning defense against the dark arts uh, outside of just a defense against the dark arts classroom because we know Professor Umbridge wasn't really teaching them very well. Uh, so she came up with the idea. Uh, Sirius Head actually appears in the fire. They have a conversation with him. And he actually thinks it's a great idea, which ironically makes Hermione think it's no longer a good idea, but they decide to, to go through with it anyways. Uh, mentioning that, we started think, uh, learning that some of the communications inside and outside of Hogwarts were being monitored. Hagrid got injured. Uh, Sirius came back in the fire again later on, and Umbridge almost pulled him out of the fire with her hand. Uh, they actually had their, their meeting in Hogshead, where Harry went and kind of explained what Hermione's plan was to do to teach them defense against the dark arts. It didn't really go as planned in that meeting because they all just wanted to hear the story about what happened in the graveyard last year. So uh, he basically tells them, listen, if that's what you came here for, get out of here. We're here to learn defense against the dark arts if you want to pass your owls and if you want to help you know, in the real world if you ever have to unfortunately face some of these uh, dark wizards out there. So they end up all agreeing. They sign that contract that Hermione smartly puts a jinx on to let, them, let, them know, let everybody know if someone uh, blabs to anybody else. And, and they actually have their very first meeting. And it goes well. He starts them off at basics. They, they go to the room of requirement. Dobby kind of uh, gives them the idea. And so they get there, and it has everything they need, all the cool counter jinx books and all the cushions on the ground. So they, they start off with the disarming spell. Had a little bit of mixed results, but... That's kind of where we left off is the very end of the first defense against, well, I guess I should say, like, uh, Dumbledore's army. That's what they ended up naming it. But that we ended up, we ended at the very first defense against the dark arts that Harry taught in the rumor requirement. That's where we kind of left off going into where we're at today, which is the lion and the serpent. And like we were mentioning, you know, Ron has made the Quidditch team as a keeper. But if you listened to us last week, there was a lot of room for improvement for him, man. 
we're gonna kind of see that take a downward spiral today. <laughs> Still uh, look at room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Let's get into this bad boy. Yeah, man. Um, but yeah, just like you were saying, we're gonna find out that Ron has a lot of room for improvement. By the way, just on a side note. The film never mentions Quidditch at all. So just kind of throwing that in there. If you're expecting to see any sort of Quidditch, don't watch um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the film, because apparently it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> as far as, so kicking us off on the lion and the serpent, right? So the first thing I have is, you know, meetings are actually really going well for the DA, right? Um, so as far as the DA meetings go, they've had three meetings of the DA, and uh, Neville has already like successfully disarmed Hermione, so that was pretty wild considering her Neville. I mean, he's not exactly the smartest guy in the group. No offense, <laughs> just kind of throwing it out there. Uh, Colin Creevy, he has mastered the impediment jinx after three meetings, and Pavardi Patil actually produced a good reductor uh, curse, which is you know kind of hard to do. Remember back in Goblet of Fire, especially the film where they kind of mixed it up. Harry goes reductor against like the devil snare looking vine in the film. They didn't do it in the book, but yeah. So that was the reductor curse that Pavardi Patil actually did, and it says she reduced the table carrying all the sneakoscopes. You know, the sneakoscopes. A lot of them were actually in Alistair Moody's office. Uh, it said she re reduced that uh, table to dust. Um, it was almost impossible, they mentioned, to fix the meetings um, to a, a specific day of the week, just like how we do the podcast here on, on Sundays, or if I come out with an interesting facts episode uh, just for this season, it would come out on Wednesdays, right? So we have a specific day of the week we do it. Well, they had so much going on, it was almost impossible to do that. So there are three separate Quidditch teams between just the DA members that they had they were having to organize around, such as, for instance, you know, they had the Hufflepuff Quidditch team, and then Cho was on Ravenclaw, and then, of course, Harry is on Gryffindor. Um, so, I mean, and on top of that, the weather conditions. So, I mean, there was a lot Harry was having to really organize around this. Um, Harry actually preferred to wind up keeping the DA meetings that way, though, unpredictable, he mentions, um, because it was hard to pick up on is fact of you know especially how we talked about last episode you know umbridge is really starting to be on high alert here and trying to dig into what's going on and figuring out where that room of requirement and everything is um what is really cool this kind of kicks off on a really cool note for what hermione came up with um each of the da members actually got a fake gallon galleon coin which was really awesome um the way she did it was the Roman numerals that are usually on the galleon coin uh, that refer to the goblin that casted the coin. Almost like if you look at like the American dollar or the pound or something, right? You know, they have serial numbers on there, uh, like on the side for where they were printed out and that sort of thing. Well, instead, what would happen is she had put uh, a charm on it. Or how do I pronounce that charm? Is the protean charm? P-R-O-T-E-A-N, yep. charm. Did I actually say it right this time? <laughs> cool, good stuff, yeah. Yep. Dilly, dilly. Um, but it would actually change that Roman numerals to 
uh, the actual time of the meeting, so they knew when to meet. Well, they're, they're serial uh, numbers. They're not Roman numerals. They're actually numbers. Because if they're Roman numerals, how are they going to tell the date and time in Roman numerals? Oh, sorry. It's yeah, serial, serial numbers. numbers. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would just change. Yeah. What I mean there is it the serial numbers Correct. that was on the coin, right? And if they could all read um, Roman numerals like that in 1996, that'd be awesome. <laughs> all I'm saying is Hermione Granger put it together, so I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> she expected she probably to learn Roman numerals. <laughs> probably make it more secretive, right? <laughs> no, but that's a very good point. Yeah, so serial numbers, sorry, not Roman numerals. Uh, stand correct there. Uh, but And also, too, uh, I thought was really clever it would actually they could keep it in their pocket uh, i don't know exactly how it will work if someone put it in their purse but i guess it's a good thing we don't really see gryffindor or ravenclaw or hufflepuff or slytherin ladies wear purses they kind of just stick it in their robes right but it glows it basically like grows hot like it gets really hot if the date and time changed so they know that the date and time changed uh, to look at it and that's on page 398 if you want to really look into that so i thought that was a really um really genius plan on hermione here like that was really clever uh to think of that especially with how they were trying to having to organize their meetings and everything so um with that i'll turn it turn it over to you jay nelly awesome yeah let's so get it going my man you got it and one of the cool things too kind of piggybacking off of where we're at with her and these galleons and the protein charm and letting them know when the date and time is we actually learn on page 399 that uh hermione got the idea from the death eaters dark mark because it's very very right. similar how it works like voldemort would touch the mark of one of his death eaters and they would burn on all the other death eaters and they would know it's the time to apparate to come to him so i'll actually go ahead and read that passage he says mrs harry talking about that to hermione says you know what these remind me of no what's that the Death Eater scars. Voldemort touches one of them, and all their scars burn, and they know they've got to join him. Well, yes, said Hermione quietly. That is where I got the idea. But you'll notice I decided to engrave the dates in bits of metal rather than our member's skin. <laughs> yeah, I prefer your way. <laughs> I suppose the only danger is that we might accidentally spend them. Fat chance, said Ron, who was examining his own fake galleon slightly with a mournful air. I haven't got any real ones to confuse it with. So I just wanted to point that out because it's kind of cool that they're using a dark wizard's tactic to do a defense against a dark arts club. It's a it was really it was really unique. I really enjoyed that. Uh, now on page four hundred, I thought this was cool. Like all the teachers kind of have some sort of bias to their own house. Like Professor McGonagall, for example, <laughs> doesn't give them homework in the week leading up to the match versus Slytherin, which you know if you guys know her, especially in Owl Year. You know, you would never think that McGonagall's not going to give them extra homework to do because she wants to make sure they're all going to pass, and she's a strict teacher as it is. So thought that was pretty interesting. On page 400, you know, talk about a little bit how, how <laughs> Alicia Spinett was actually hexed. So I thought that was kind of messed up. We started seeing, like, uh, uh, Niles Bletchley hit her from behind with a jinx while she worked in the library uh, with, <laughs> with a hair-thickening charm. So that was that was pretty screwed up. Like, I think that some people should be get like if you attacked somebody in a regular high school, you'd be suspended. Like these people didn't even get a detention. Like the Snape's like, oh, she must have done it to herself. Nope, can't see anything wrong here. Like if it was anybody else in any school, if you attack somebody in the in the hallways, 
your ass is getting, if not expelled, at least suspended for a few days. So, <laughs> uh, going on here, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and read the last page, or pass by the paragraph through uh, the first paragraph on page 401, and then I'll let you take it from there. But, uh, Harry felt optimistic about Gryffindor's chances. They had, after all, never lost to Malfoy's team. Admittedly, Ron was still not performing to Wood's standards, but he was working extremely hard to improve. His greatest weakness was a tendency to lose confidence when he made a blunder. If he let in one goal, he became flustered and was therefore likely to miss more. On the other hand, Harry had seen Ron make some truly spectacular saves when he was on form. During one memorable practice, he had hung one-handed from his broom and kicked the quaffle so hard away from the goal hoop that it soared the length of the pitch and through the center hoop at the other end. The rest of the team felt this save compared favorably with the one uh, that recently by Barry Ryan, the Irish international keeper against Poland's top chaser, Ladislaw Zamjowski. Even Fred had said that Ron might yet make him and George proud, and they were seriously considering admitting that he was actually related to them, something that he assured Ron they had been trying to deny for years. So, <laughs> that was pretty funny, man. I always like they always gotta have a dig at him. Friend George always got that little clever snide remarks to say, and I love it, brother. So, with that, I'll pass it back over to your side. Fred and George, by the way, Fred and George, man, like they're they're awesome. Like I think, really, J.K. Rowling couldn't have invented two more fantastic characters that not only not only really give that comedic effect to it. But also, like, um, bring in something different to the side of the story as well. Like, they're, you're actually seeing their path go through it. It's funny. And also, like, it's not just going the typical way of, like, taking on all these, like, antagonists, right? So, uh, Fred and George, man, your boys, they're, That's they're awesome. That's one thing she does so well, talking about J.K. Rowling, is that she makes you invested not only in the main characters, but in the side characters as well, the supporting characters. It's really amazing. It's something that's not done enough in a lot of pieces of literature so that that is you know like think about it you know we have a serious connection to Remus Lupin to Mm -hmm. probably Sirius Black and to Fred and George like these are people who honestly they don't play a huge role I mean Sirius plays a decent role but like still think about Lupin he had that one book that he was their defense against the dark arts teacher and then he just kind of comes in and out from there like it's just she does an amazing job really like the five main characters are Harry, Ron, Hermione, Dumbledore, and Voldemort. That's really it. Like, if you think about it, you break it down to the skin and bones, that's the five main characters. And the fact is, is that we have a lot of cool memories or pages where other characters have stood out to us in a really cool way. So, I love it. It really is. And as far as, like, ranking goes, that we'll do a long time from now. Because <laughs> we still got a big ride, even though we're almost... We're past halfway through the series, right? But yep. we still got a long road to hoe, as my dad <laughs> used to tell me. Um, but that's, like, the tough part, man. It's, like, there's so many really good characters that you become invested in. Like, it really does, like, if anything happens to any one of them. Like, you know, we bring up Game of Thrones a lot. But there's, like, even a lot of characters in Game of Thrones. Like, for instance, like, House of Frey. Like, do you think I really gave a shit about the House of Frey getting poisoned by Arya? No, I was glad, like, it happened. Like, I wasn't attached to any of them. Like, you see what I mean? So yeah. there's so many. Um, that's, I agree with you 100%. It, it, it was genius. Um, one thing I did want to bring up here real quick before we kind of go on from there is just this little part about Hermione was, because it's funny, you were talking about houses, so it reminded me of this. 
Um, Terry Boot was talking to her, and I gotta give, I gotta mention this because it brings up my old props from Ravenclaw. So I'm a Gryffindor now, but once a Ravenclaw, always a Ravenclaw. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the way I look at it. So um, it, she's kind of, I guess I'm like her, but a little bit like the opposite way because <laughs> I guess that's the way maybe it kind of worked. Or maybe I am similar to her, but mixed with a little bit of Harry because I speak that possible tongue, baby. Fuck yeah. Um, but so Terry Boot was so like astounded that Hermione could do a protean charm. And he says, You can do a protean charm? Uh, said Terry Boot. Yes, said Hermione. But that that's a newt standard, that is, he said weakly. Oh, said Hermione, trying to look modest. Oh, well, yes, I suppose it is. How come you're not in Ravenclaw? He demanded, staring at Hermione with something close to wonder. With brains like yours. Well, the sorting hat did seriously consider putting me in Ravenclaw during my sorting, said Hermione brightly, but it decided on Gryffindor in the end. So does that mean we're using the galleon? <laughs> Galleons? <laughs> like, it's so great. But he was, like, so astounded that someone as smart as her would not be put in that house, so... Um, you know, props to my Ravenclaw people. Uh, I, I get it. You know, I even had a, a post on my Instagram one day when I got my first Ravenclaw robe like five years ago over at, um, you know, Universal Studios. Right. Uh, you know, they say they're not the bravest or the smartest or not the bravest or the um not the bravest, right, of the group, but they do say they are the smartest, right? Well, that just proves they're really not always the smartest. <laughs> so, gotta give props to Hermione Granger. Maybe that's why they transferred me out of Ravenclaw, because, you know, you can be a little bit of both. So, I went over to Jay Nelly's household. <laughs> so, it's, uh, yeah, man, so props to my girl. That was that was good stuff. They said um, that uh, you were hanging out with me too much, and they had to switch houses. They said, nope, you've been hanging out with him over <laughs> in Gryffindor. You, they can keep you. <laughs> They're like, you know, Chase was uh, not really a homebody, but he was a little bit of a goody-goody for a while, and then he turned into that bad boy. Oh, not as bad as that I Slytherin, think, baby. I think what you were trying to say, too, is like they're not the uh, bravest or the strongest, but they're the smartest. So, like... I, that's I, it. Yeah. Bravest or the strongest. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. 100%. Yeah. I got your bet. You know that. Um, yeah. yeah. Go ahead and continue on, brother. Yeah. Uh, so we're kind of jumping back up to where we were. I just wanted to... That was... McGonagall here always keeps falling off. If y'all are listening on the podcast, we got all our visuals today that looked really good. Uh, but old McGonagall here always has trouble. So we'll just keep her right here by Snape, I guess. Speaking of houses, maybe she'll turn to the dark side at one point. So Well, she has but, a cool uh, moment with Snape in Deathly Hallows, like the movie. Like that was one of my favorite scenes of the entire series. Like not trying to give anything away, guys, but like if you've watched the movies, one of my very favorite scenes in the whole series because I don't if you guys have not gotten it by yet, I do not like the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> so the <laughs> fact is is like when something stands out from them, I really enjoy it and uh, I won't say what happens, but McGonagall and Snape have have a moment on screen in part two of Deathly Hallows, and it's pretty awesome. I'll say that. And I got I gotta say, like it's like it's not that I don't like the movies. It's like if you've never seen Harry Potter, you would like the movies. You you've never, if you've never read it. Harry Potter, if you've never, never read, yeah. that's what I mean. Sorry, uh, stand corrected there. 
never read Harry Potter, you would like the movies. Probably. Uh, like, especially little kids. Like, not little kids, but, for instance, like a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old, they would love it. Because, like, they're not looking at the nitty-gritty details that we look at here. Um, but, especially, guys, go back and read the books. It's like, it's just... It's kind of like... I hate to say it, and I like Chronicles of Narnia, but it's like comparing Chronicles of Narnia to Lord of the Rings. Like, it's just like no comparison, unfortunately. But um, what I was going to say here is like 402, man. Starting on page 402, if y'all want to follow along. McGonagall, man, she does not like Snape at all. Um, starting on 402, though, so they start gearing up for this whole Quidditch game with Slytherin, right? And you can really tell. It's almost like as you remember playing football and I, I know you do it's like right before that first game of the season like and you know you're gonna play it's like even even if like say it was your freshman year and you weren't sure if you were gonna play still that like anxiety sets in from the side like oh my word I can get called any moment to go in I better know what play I'm doing like all the anxiety and all the you know tremors and the whole like everything just sets in your mind like what if something goes wrong and the problem is this is ron's kryptonite man <laughs> it's his kryptonite and it keeps hitting him worse and worse um and i want to read just this little section here just to show you it said on page 402 ron looked as pale and sweaty as when he accidentally put the slug vomiting charm on himself ron collapsed into the nearest bench and looked as if he were facing his final meal like, oh, dude, like, oh, I feel so bad for this guy. But at the same time, it's like, even if you didn't play sports, right, you were about to give a big speech, you're about to do a final for an exam. Like, we've all been there in those moments where, like, there's something so important to you the next day where you're like, I, I better not mess this up. Like, this is like, dude, like, and it's all just draining from his face. And I, I feel bad for him here. Um and this is, you know, I got to give props to Harry on, on 403 here because as, like, a best friend, I always say this. And, like, this is actually why Josh uh, became one of my best friends starting off. Like, he's my best friend to this day, like, right now. But, like, when we first became best friends years ago, going all the way back to 2013, he was the most real friend I've ever had, right? And it, a real friend, like tells you not what you want to hear <laughs> like that's the thing like just because like like ron's really i don't know about you but i felt like in my mind like ron was almost like wanting someone to feel sorry for him what what do you think do you think he was wanting someone to feel sorry for him because he's moping a whole lot i think uh, he was more busy like feeling sorry for himself than like really wanting anyone else to feel sorry for him. like like i i think he was just really in his own head and like it's just one of those things. Maybe he did, at an extent, like want people to feel sorry for him. I could see the argument for it. I just think the more the the obvious thing is that like he was so deep into his own head and self doubt that I'm not sure if he was actively seeking for people to feel bad for him, or if it just kind of happened because of how he was portraying himself because he was in his own head. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, no, that's a really good point though, but. Uh... I'll read this little section, and uh, I'm going to talk about one, uh, you know, speaking of Ravenclaw, because i got to represent on this section that I'm doing right here for my Ravenclaw people. 
Uh, same thing. I'm kind of like Luna Lovegood, man. Like, was a Ravenclaw, and now she's over here supporting Gryffindor for no reason. Uh, the weirdest thing. Like, I don't really get it, but hey, good for her, man. Like, I'm, I'm glad she can... I'm glad she can go out there with full spirit. That's great stuff. But so Jenny comes up to Ron, right? And she's like, how are you feeling? Jenny asked Ron, who is now staring into the dregs of milk at the bottom of his empty cereal bowl, as though seriously considering attempting to drown himself in them. He's just nervous, said Harry. Well, that's a good sign. I never feel you perform as well in exams if you're not a bit nervous, said Hermione heartedly. Hello said a vague and dreamy voice from behind them. Harry looked up. Luna Lovegood had drifted over from the Ravenclaw table. Many people were staring at her and a few openly laughing and pointing. She had managed to procure a hat shape like a life-size lion on he- lion's head, which was perched precariously on her head. I'm supporting Gryffindor, <laughs> said Luna, pointing unnecessarily at her hat. Look what he does. She reached up and tapped the hat with her wand. It opened its wide mouth and gave an extremely realistic roar that made everyone in the vicinity jump. It's good, isn't it? (laughs) Said Luna happily. I wanted to have it chewing up a serpent to represent Slytherin, you know, but there wasn't time. Anyways, good luck, Ronald. She drifted away. They had not quite recovered from the shock of Luna's hat before Angelina came hurrying towards them, accompanied by Katie and Alicia whose eyebrows had mercifully been returned to normal by Madame Pomfrey. Um, and then right before then, what I was going to say is, you know, Harry says this to Ron. He was like, get a grip, said Harry sternly. Look at that save you made with your foot the other day. Even Fred and George said it was brilliant. Ron turned his tortured face to Harry. And that was right before Luna showed up. So it goes to show, like, you know, Harry, right... He's trying to, like, shake Ron out of it because he realizes, like, Ron acting this way, it's only going to affect him on the field. Like, this is only carrying over. Like, he realized what Ron's problem is. So he's trying to shake him a grip of it. And then I had to support my girl Luna because based on what we were talking about with Hermione, uh, this girl's hilarious. If you've seen, this is the one with all the gifts. I do feel like this section of the movie did this really well. Um... ironically this isn't really even in order of the phoenix this is actually in like half blood prince the movie i don't know why they decided to move the entire section to that one but if you look up all the gifts like i sent one to josh the other day just talking about luna and she has like that big lion head on could you imagine like seeing someone that's like seeing um that's almost like seeing a falcons fan with well, I guess I, I guess I'm guilty of it because I watched the Bucks, <laughs> like Tom Brady go to the sleigh fest. Because it's not as bad as a Falcons fan putting on Saints gear, but it really is. It's like a Falcons fan putting on Bucks gear, or as a Giants fan, right? How you hate the Cowboys? That'd be almost like, let's say, so you're in the East, so. Well, who's someone that's not like? Who's your utmost rivalry as the Giants? Uh, it's between the Eagles and the Cowboys of like the most heated rally between them. But like, I wouldn't compare Ravenclaw and Gryffindor's rivalry to that. Like, I think it'd just be like a different team from a different conference that you like kind of root for more than anything. You Cause think it's so? Just, yeah, because like they never had any animosity towards each other. Like, it's really been like everyone hates Slytherin. That's kind of how like the schools really yeah. been. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I wouldn't say 
Yeah, but but you still like you you shouldn't be caught wearing another team's like you wouldn't catch me wearing <laughs> a Seahawks jersey or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like if you're a Giants fan, you're a Giants fan. That's it. Like well, even when I went out to the Super Bowl and watched the Buccaneers uh, a couple weeks back. I didn't wear like all my friends were wearing Bucks stuff. I refused to wear anything Bucks. I'm like, no, I'm not gonna wear a Bucks anything. I don't care yeah, that I'm either. watching it. I don't care that I'm here in the city while it's happening at the stadium. I'm a Giants fan, and that's it. <laughs> like I'm not I'm not sitting here putting anything on just to just to support a team. Even though like, did I partially want the Buccaneers to win that game? Sure, but I'm not gonna be sporting their attire. So yeah, that's yeah. More, I think that's more of like a better correlation than a rivalry than anything. Yeah. Unless it's Tony Romo, you better not be caught wearing any of everyone else's gear because Tony Romo is a legend. If it's Tony Romo, it's all right. It's we, okay. We've we've done this. We've done this already <laughs> out of here, man. You guys remember a couple weeks back, Chase and I had a big discussion about Tony Romo and the Dallas Cowboys. That um, not I, they're my they're my least favorite sports franchise. Not just football team. They're my least favorite sports franchise so. which i gotta say it's okay now with tony romo because he's retired so i feel like it's okay oh he's know, a great tony. commentator love is love is compensating he's funny as hell but didn't like him on the field <laughs> <laughs> with that i'll turn it over to you jay nelly good stuff man sounds good brother so going into page 404 uh just a quick little highlight of a foreshadow here hermione actually kisses ron on the cheek for luck i thought that was pretty sweet of her she didn't give Harry a kiss on the cheek. She gave Ron a kiss on the cheek. So, uh, But anyways, uh, also looking at that, we finally have our Weasley is our king badges that Malfoy concocted. Like, honestly, you know, we can talk crap about Malfoy and how he's a piece of poop all the day long, but he's actually a genius at getting under people's skin. Like, he can get you out of your element because I, of how twisted he is. He doesn't care. There's no line to be drawn from. He'll talk about your parents he'll talk about your mother sister grandmother in that order like he doesn't care so he'll do anything and you know ron is one of those people who gets affected by outside noise like that so when he came up with these weasley as our king badges it uh really really kind of and then we start they even have like all their own little song and i'll i'll do it in a little bit don't, don't get me <laughs> wrong but uh uh going on from there i'm gonna go do a couple bullet points and i'm gonna actually read through the match uh, page 405, Crab and Goyle are actually the new Slytherin beaters, because uh, the other one's graduated. So, um, Crab and Goyle, new Slytherin beaters. Montag is the new Slytherin captain, because Marcus Flint graduated with Oliver Wood. So, Montag's the new Slytherin captain. And uh, page 406, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and start reading, but uh, I like this part real quick, is when Lee Jordan makes a pass at Angelina on the commentating mic. Like, tells her, like, how she's attractive and stuff, and, Mrs. and Professor McGonagall kind of loses her mind, but let me just go ahead and read uh, from here through page 413, which is going to be the entirety of the Quidditch match. So, anyways, Captain, shake hands, ordered the umpire, Madame Hooch, as Angelina and Montag reached each other. Harry could tell that Montag was trying to crush Angelina's fingers, though she did not wince. Mount your brooms. Madame Hooch placed her whistle in her mouth and blew. The balls were released, and the 14 players shot upwards. Out of the corner of his eye, Harry saw Ron streak off towards the goal hoops. He zoomed higher, dodging a bludger, and set off on a wide lap around the pitch, gazing for a glint of gold. On the other side of the stadium, Draco Malfoy was doing the exact same. And it's Johnson! Johnson with the quaffle! What a player that girl is! I've been saying it for years, but she still won't go out with me! Jordan! <laughs> he yelled Professor McGonagall. Just a fun fact, Professor. Adds a bit of interest. And she's ducked Warrington. She's past Montag. She's ouch. 
been hit from behind by a bludger from Crab. Montag catches a waffle. Montag heading back up the pitch. Nice bludger there from George Weasley. That's a bludger to the head for Montag. He drops a quaffle, caught by Katie Bell. Katie Bell of Gryffindor reverse passes to Weasley Spinnet and Spinnet's away. Lee Jordan's commentary rang through the stadium, and Harry listened as hard as he could through the wind whistling in his ears and the din of the crowd, all yelling and booing and singing. Dodges Warrington, avoids a bludger, close call Alicia, and the crowd are loving this. Just listen to them. Wait, what's that they're singing? And as Lee paused to listen to the song that rose loud and clear from the sea of green and silver and the southern section of the stands... It's saying, Weasley cannot save a thing, cannot block a single ring, that's why the Slytherins sing, Weasley is our king, Weasley was born in a bin, he always lets the quaffle in, Weasley will never make a win, <laughs> Weasley is our king, and Alicia passes back to Angelina. Lee shouted, and as Harry swerved, his insides boiled at what he had just heard, he knew Lee was trying to drown out the sound of the singing, come on now Angelina. She looks like she's got the keeper to beat. She shoots, she... Ah! Bletchley, the Slytherin keeper, had saved the goal. He threw the quaffle to Warrington, who sped off with it, zigzagging between Alicia and Katie, and the singing from below grew louder and louder as he drew nearer and nearer Ron. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. He always lets the quaffle in. Weasley is our king. And Harry could not help himself. Abandoning his search for the snitch, he wheeled around to watch Ron. A lone figure at the end of the pitch, hovering before three goal hoops while the massive Warrington pelted toward him. And it's Warrington with the quaffle. Warrington heading for the goal. He's out of budget range, but just to keep her ahead, a great swell of song rose from the Slytherin stands below. Weasley cannot save a thing, cannot block a single ring. And so it's the first test for Gryffindor keeper Weasley, brother of beaters Fred and George, and a promising new talent on the team. Come on, Ron! But the screams of delight came from Slytherin end. Ron had died wildly, his arms wide, and the quaffle had soared right between them, straight through Ron's central hoop. Slytherin score, came Lee's voice amid the cheering and booing from the crowds. So that's ten to nil, Slytherin. Bad luck, Ron. And the Slytherin sang even louder. Weasley was born in a bin. He always lets the quaffle in. And Gryffindor is back in possession, and it's Katie Bell tanking up the pitch, cried Lee valiantly, though the singing was now deafening and he could hardly make out uh, the words himself above it. Weasley will make sure we win. Weasley is our king. Harry, what are you doing? Screamed Angelina, soaring past him to keep up with Katie. Get going! And Harry realized that he had been stationary in midair for more than a minute, watching the progress of the match without a sparing thought for the whereabouts of the snitch. Horrified, he went into a dive and started circling around the pitch again, staring, trying to ignore the chorus, thundering through the stadium. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. There was no sign of the snitch anywhere. He looked. Malfoy was still circling the stadium just like Harry. They passed midway around the pitch, going in opposite directions, and Harry heard Malfoy singing loudly, Weasley was born in a bin, and it's Warrington again. Bellowed Lee, who passes to Pusey. Pusey off past Spinnet. Come on, Angelina, you can take him. Turns out you can't. But nice bludger from Fred Weasley. I mean, George Weasley. Oh, who cares? One of them, anyways. And Warrington drops a quaffle, and Katie Bell, uh, drops it too. So that's Montag with the quaffle. Slytherin Captain Montag takes the quaffle, and he's up off the pitch. Come on now, Gryffindor, block him. Harry zoomed around the end of the stadium behind the Slytherin goal hoops, willing himself not to look at what was going on at Ron's end. He sped past the Slytherin keeper. He, held, he heard Bletchley singing along with the crowd below. Weasley cannot save a thing. And Pusey's dodged Alicia again. He's headed straight for the goal. Stop it, Ron! And Harry did not have to look to see what had happened. There was a terrible groan from the Gryffindor end, coupled with fresh screams and applause from the Slytherins. Looking down, Harry saw the pug-faced Pansy Parkinson 
right at the front of the stands, her back to the pitch as she conducted the Slytherin supporters who were roaring, That's why all the Slytherins sing, Weasley is our king. But 20 to nil was nothing. There was still time for Gryffindor to catch up or catch the snitch. A few goals and they would be in the lead as usual. Harry assured himself bobbing and weaving through the other players in pursuit of something shiny that turned out to be Montag's watch strap. But Ron led in two more goals. There was an edge of panic in Harry's desire to find the snitch now if he could just get it soon and finish the game quickly. And Katie Bell of Gryffindor dodges PUC, ducks Montag, nice swerve Katie, and she throws to Johnson. Angelina Johnson takes the quaffle, she's past Warrington, she's headed for the goal. Come on, Angelina, Gryffindor score! It's 40-10, 40-10 to Slytherin, and PUC has a quaffle. And Harry could hear, hear Luna's ridiculous uh, lion hat roaring amidst the, the Gryffindor cheers and felt heartened. Only 30 points in it, and that was nothing. They could pull back easily. Harry ducked a bludger that Crab had sent rocketing in his direction and resumed his frantic scouring of the pitch for the snitch. Keeping one eye on Malfoy in case he showed signs of having spotted it, but Malfoy, like him, was continuing to soar around the stadium, searching fruitlessly. Pusey throws a Warrington, Warrington to Montag, Montag back to Pusey. Johnson intervenes, Johnson takes a quaffle, Johnson to Bell, this looks good, I mean bad. Bell is hit by a bludger from Goyle of Southern, and it's Pusey in possession again. Weasley was born in a bin, he always lets the quaffle in. Weasley make sure we win. But Harry had seen it at last. The tiny fluttering golden snitch was hovering feet from the ground at Slytherin's end of the pitch. He dived. And in a matter of seconds, Malfoy was streaking out of the sky on Harry's left, a green and silver blur lying flat on his broom. The snitch skirted the foot of one of the goal hoops and scooted off towards the other end of the stands. In its change of direction suited Malfoy, who was near, so Harry pulled his firebolt around and he and Malfoy were now neck and neck. Feet from the ground, Harry lifted his right hand from his broom, stretching towards the snitch, to his right, Malfoy's arm extended too, reaching, groping, and it was over in two breathless, desperate, windswept seconds. Harry's fingers closed around the tiny, struggling ball, and Malfoy's fingernails scrabbled the back of Harry's hand hopelessly, and Harry pulled his broom upward, holding the struggling ball in his hand, and the Gryffindor spectators screamed their approval. They were saved. It did not matter what Ron had let in those goals, no one would remember as long as Gryffindor had won. Wham! A bludger hit Harry squarely in the small of his back as he flew forward off his broom. Luckily, he was only five or six feet above the ground, having dived so low to catch a snitch, but he was winded all the same as he landed flat on his back on the frozen pitch. He heard Madame Hooch's shrill whistle, an uproar in the stands, compounded catcalls, angry yells, jeering, and a thud, and Angelina's frantic voice. Are you all right? Of course I am, said Harry grimly, taking her hand and allowing her to pull him to his feet. Madame Hooch was zooming towards one of the Slytherin players uh, above him, though he could not see who it was at this angle. It was that thug crab, said Angelina angrily. He whacked the bludger at you the moment he saw you got the snitch, but we won, Harry. We won. And Harry heard a, a snort from behind him and turned around, still holding the snitch tightly in his hand. Draco Malfoy landed close by, white face with fury, still was managing to sneer. Save Weasley's neck, haven't you? he said to Potter. I've never seen a worse keeper. But then, he was born in a bin. Did you like my lyrics, Potter? Harry did not answer. He turned away to meet the rest of the team who were now landing one by one, yelling and punching the air in triumph, all except Ron, who had dismounted from his broom over by one of the goalposts, was making his way slowly back to the changing rooms alone. We wanted to write a couple, another couple of verses, Malfoy called as Katie and Alicia hugged Harry. But we couldn't find rhymes for fat and ugly. We wanted to sing about his mother, see? Talk about sour grapes, said Angelina, casting Malfoy a disgusted look. We couldn't fit in useless loser either, for his father, you know. And Fred and George had realized what Malfoy was talking about. 
Halfway through shaking Harry's hand, they stiffened, looking at Malfoy. Leave it, said Angelina at once, taking Fred by the arm. Leave it, Fred. Let him yell. He's just sorry lost. The jumped-up little... But you like the Weasleys, don't you, Potter, said Malfoy, sneering. Spend holidays there and everything, don't you? Can't see how you stand the stink. But I suppose when you've been dragged up by muggles, even the Weasleys' hovel smells okay. Harry grabbed hold of George. Meanwhile, it was taking the combined efforts of Angelina, Alicia, and Katie to stop Fred from leaping on Malfoy, who was laughing openly. Harry looked around for Madame Hooch, but she was still berating Crab for his illegal bludger attack. Or perhaps, said Malfoy, leering as he backed away, you, you can remember what your mother's house stank like, Potter. And maybe Weasley, Weasley's pigsty reminds you of it. Harry was not aware of releasing George. All he knew was that a second later, both of them were sprinting at Malfoy. He had completely forgotten the fact that all the teachers were watching. All he wanted to do was cause Malfoy as much pain as possible. With no time to draw out his wand, he merely drew back his fist, clutching the snitch, and sank it as hard as he could into Malfoy's stomach. Harry! Harry! George, no! He could hear the girls' voices screaming, Malfoy yelling, George swearing, and a whistle blowing and the bellowing of the crowd around him, but he did not care, not until somebody in the vicinity yelled, Impedimenta! And only then was he knocked backwards by the force of the spell that he abandoned the attempt to punch every inch of Malfoy that he could reach. What do you think you're doing? screamed Madame Hooch as Harry leapt to his feet again. It was she who had hit him with the impediment jinx. She was holding her whistle in one hand and one in the other, her broom laid abandoned several feet away. Malfoy was curled up on the ground, whimpering and moaning, his nose bloody. George was sparting a swollen lip, and Fred was still being forcibly restrained by the three chasers, and Crab was cackling in the background. I've never seen behavior like it. Back up to the castle, both of you, and straight to your head of house's office. Go. Now. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, brother. But, dude, that was a crazy <laughs> match. So not only did Ron really screw up royally and let almost every single... He did. He, let, he didn't save a single quaffle that match at all. He let him all in. <laughs> so Harry kind of saved his rough. neck, but then Malfoy, who sucks, he's a terrible loser, like we were talking about earlier you know, in this episode, he has no line where he draws it. You know, He talks about mothers, fathers, like families, dead parents, and finally, like, Harry and George just, they, they rushed him and gave him what he was asking for, but of course, it's always the person who reacts that gets caught. So now they're in a bit of trouble, and Chase will take you through a little bit of what that, uh, trouble actually entails and how bad it really gets by the way like let's just bring this fact up like i feel like this is the only thing malfoy is good at like what else has malfoy ever done good like he's never even gotten a snitch like what has he really done good in his classes besides make average grades like he, he this is really like the only thing he's good at is talking shit <laughs> i would say like language. the one thing i would say is that we don't know how malfoy plays against the other teams like hufflepuff and ravenclaw because we never in the book yeah. like just read a hufflepuff and slytherin match or a hufflepuff or a ravenclaw right. and slytherin match right all we see is like whoever gryffindor plays right because these yeah. they're, they're just, like the protagonist of the book so it's like he probably has he's probably decent at quidditch he's not on harry's level but uh, yeah. I'm sure he's decent at it. And obviously, he's Snape's favorite student, so he scores well in Snape's class a lot. So, Here's a but, question. Yeah. So, and this is kind of going a little bit off the wall, not too much, but still staying on topic. Um, if Harry played Victor Crumb, who do you think would wind up winning that, that match there? Victor Crumb. 
Like you saw the you stuff. Think he, so? Oh, absolutely. Like he ended up getting the snitch against like the greatest team ever assembled in the Quidditch World Cup against yeah. Ireland. Like, and he did it in pretty crazy fashion. And that was the whole world watching, right? Harry's only played like right. little school ball, you know. Here, like I don't say school Quidditch. I should say not school ball, but like, yeah, no. Victor and plus Victor Crumb's older, uh, but he like at least Victor did say that Harry impressed him with his flying. But I, I think that right. at this point in time, if they went head to head. Victor Crumb would would come away with the snitch there. I think so too. Like it's just a, a totally different level there. Yeah. I mean, and people forget too. Like even despite the fact I 100% agree with you. Like I think Victor Crumb would most likely blow Harry out. Like it'd kind of be like the Browns played Alabama. Like the Browns aren't the best team in football, but they I feel like they would still crush Alabama. Like they'd probably put Absolutely. like a thirty burger on them. <laughs> like, like I mean, it's like. And then at the same time, I mean, keep in mind, remember Victor Crumb, like, <laughs> like almost smashed into the ground when he got fainted on by the Ireland squad. <laughs> so, like, I mean, there's just, like, it, it just proves a point, just like you're saying, like, there's levels this to this. <laughs> yeah. This is like college. That's the NFL. You know, like, it's no comparison. It's so funny that you said that, too. You know what? I'm going to play a mouse in the chalice card quickly. Just Go it's it. going it's going real fast. It's just this is I always wanted to bring this point up because like if you guys couldn't tell our listeners, we're really big sports guys, and me more than anything, football is where most of my specialty really like kind of lies. Not only in watching it throughout my life, but playing it as well through the freshman year college level. So, I uh, the biggest thing that always frustrated me is when people would say the best college football team could beat the worst. NFL team it's just not true like it's yeah. not even remotely close to true if you guys think about it let's take like you said Alabama for example on a regular average year there may be seven players from 22 starters that will go to the pro every year right so right that's seven players out of 22 in NFL every player in the, on an NFL team was the best player on their college team at one point. So, like, they're not, you're, you're going to be playing against, you know, Sarah, who's going to be bagging groceries at Publix next year. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. like you know, like or, or Ryan, who's going to be Barnes & Noble cashier. Like, like, you're not playing against, like, grown men who are on the craziest diets and restrictions and weightlifting regiments who get paid to do it. You're a college athlete who is more athletic than the general population. And if you happen to be one of the best, you will go to that next level. But only, like, on a good team like Alabama, only 7 out of 22 will do that. You know? So, like, it's just – it frustrates me when people say that the the best college team could beat the worst NFL team. It wouldn't be a close match. Like, that college team would get wrecked. It would be, like, 45 to 7 every time. Like, that's 100%. my thought. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, just to make a little comment on that, not to step on your toes, but like just to, for instance, my, uh, for instance, so my senior year and my sophomore year of high school football, we were pretty much the team to beat in our entire region in Georgia. And just like New York, like Georgia has a really good, um, football like high school football program for recruiting people into college so one guy i actually did play with uh is buster screen so um he plays for now uh the uh the bears so he went to the browns for a little bit then the jets and the bears 
He played running back for us and was carrying the team. Like, I'm talking he carried the team. Like, he literally took us to the second round of the playoffs by himself. Like, he was just running through people. When he went to the NFL, because it's such a different level, and he was a stud in college. Like, it was, like, to the point of going into uh, college, he was, like, top in the state. Like, top in the state. Then goes to college... And he was, like, one of the top there. Gets drafted in the third round, and now he plays corner. <laughs> like, for the NFL. Like, there's no comparison. Uh, like, I mean, it's it's just, like, wild. My point being that is the difference is insane. Um, so, I mean, it's just it's a totally different level. So that's what I was going to uh, say there. Not, like, bringing up people I played with. Could bring up a lot of cool people, but... You know, I'm not that way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, anything else you had to say about that? That's a really good point you made because I think people forget. Like, I used to get this, like, people used to ask me all the time about that, too, especially, like, remember the year when Detroit, like, lost every single game? They're like, well, whatever. And that was the year, like, Alabama. Remember, they had won, like, three national titles in a row. Not saying Alabama was bad. They were fantastic. Like, and this is coming from a Florida Gator. Like, I go to the University of Florida. Like, I should not stand Alabama. But I got to give respect where respect is due, man. You have to. And Nick Saban's an amazing coach, and they recruit very well, and they have some of the top athletes. Julio Jones was there uh, during those years, which, you know, I'm a Falcons fan, one of our best players. Calvin Ridley came soon after that. Amazing players. But even with them at that level, at the age they are at that time, and I think part of the reason this – gets brought up is because people that I do understand people watch football very well but people that don't really study into football they watch like games on Sunday that sort of thing or games on Saturdays you see the starters you don't see rotations that go into play examples for instance you have a running back and then you're going to a tailback and a fullback to call another play or you got the wide receivers on the outside but now you're having to have someone blocking the slot yeah, you might have... There goes McGonagall again. He's over here not hanging out with Snape, man. It, McGonagall, the Quidditch, Quidditch stud example, could not go <laughs> to the high-end Quidditch teams in, in Britain. Like, I mean, it's like... My point being is, like, say you had... Not like Calvin Ridley or Julio Jones, but you still had someone to block there, right? Well, who's going to block at that level? No, that guy's bagging groceries. Just like you said, not really bagging groceries. Hopefully you graduated. There's a reason you went to college, right? <laughs> but my point being is like, it's no comparison. And on top of that, like football, even soccer, even hockey, uh, even you can even say baseball. Like I think basketball, unless you're Tom Brady, like is really the only one where you can have like one player, like LeBron James, like change the whole dynamic of the game. And that's still, like, very hard to do. So, like, my point being is, just like you said, you could have taken Detroit that lost every game that year, put them up against Alabama, and like you were saying, I would think they would put up a 30-burger on them. Easy. For sure. Well, that'll yeah. take this back off to the shadow realm. Take care of that malice card. <laughs> up to the shadows, Knock that baby. right on out of there and... We'll bring it back to where we are, where uh, they just pummeled Malfoy, and we're about to get into the uh, consequences of those actions. So I'll let you go ahead and take it from there, brother. Ooh, you know I love consequences. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, okay, so let's uh, pick it up on, actually, 
what's funny is I guess we're going to kind of pick up right after really where you left off and there's no way we can really just like avoid what happens here. So uh, this is on page 414. So it's kind of, <laughs> we have our girl umbrage. <clears throat> <laughs> so McGonagall, you know, they go to visit McGonagall, right? And Harry uh, is, is, you know, keep in mind, like, you know, Fred and George, all of them, like you mentioned, like, well, Fred, right? Fred and Harry and all of them, they both get sent there at the same time. And they're both just very, I guess, Fred's really riled up, but Harry's still, like, worried about what's going to happen. But long story is Umbridge comes into play here. And uh, so McGonagall goes, when they're going back and forth, telling the story of, like, what happened with Malfoy. Provoked you? Shouted Professor McGonagall, slamming a fist on her desk so that her... A tartan biscuit tin slid sideways off of it and burst open, littering the floor with ginger newts. He just lost, hadn't he? Of course he wanted to provoke you, but what on earth? He can have said that justified what you two... He insulted my parents, snarled George, and Harry's mother. But instead of leaving it to Madame Hooch to sort it out, you you two decided to give an exhibition of muggle dueling, did you? Bellowed Professor, McGo- Professor McGonagall. Have you any idea what you've... <clears throat> George and Harry both wheeled around. Dolores Umbridge was standing in the doorway wrapped in green tweed cloak that greatly enhanced her resemblance to a giant toad and smiling in the horribly sickly ominous way that Harry had come to associate with imminent misery. May I help, Professor McGonagall? Said Professor Umbridge. In her most poisonously sweet voice, blood rushed into Professor McGonagall's face. Help? She repeated in a constructed voice. What do you mean help? Professor Umbridge moved forward into the office, still smiling her sickly smile. Why, I thought you might be grateful for a little extra authority. In the words of Eric Cartman, respect my authority. Harry would not have been, (laughs) Harry would not have, that's not in the book, by the way. That's on South Park. Harry would not have been surprised to see sparks fly from Professor McGonagall's nostrils. You thought wrong, she said, turning her back on Umbridge. Now, you two had better listen closely. I do not care what provocation Malfoy offered you. I do not care if he insulted every family member you possess. Your behavior was disgusting, and I am giving each of you a week's worth of detention. Do not look at me like that, Potter. You deserve it, and if either of you ever... Professor McGonagall closed her eyes as though praying for patience as she turned her face towards Professor Umbridge again. Yes, I think they deserve rather more than detention, said Umbridge, smiling still more broadly. Professor McGonagall's eyes flew open. But unfortunately, she said, with an attempt at a reciprocal smile that made her look as though she had locked jaw. It's what I think that counts, as they are in my house, Dolores. Well, actually, Minerva, with simbered umbrage, I think you'll find that what I think does count. Now, where is it? Cornelius just sent it. I mean, she gave a little false laugh as she rummaged in her handbag. In her handbag. The manager just sent it. Ah, yes. She had pulled out a piece of parchment that she now unfurled, clearing her throat fussily before starting to read 
what it said. <clears throat> Educational decree number 25. Not another one, exclaimed Professor McGonagall violently. Well, yes, said Umbridge, still smiling. As a matter of fact, Minerva, it was you who made me see that we needed a further amendment. You remember how you overrode me when I was unwilling to allow Gryffindor Quidditch team to reform. How you took the case to Dumbledore, who insisted that the team would be allowed to play. Well, now I couldn't have that. I contacted the minister at once, and he quite agreed with me that the High Inquisitor has to have the power strip, pupils of privileges, or she that I would say I would have less authority than common teachers. And you see now, don't you, Minerva, how right I was in attempting to stop the Gryffindor team from reforming. Dreadful. Ooh, dreadful tempers. Anyway, I was reading out our amendment. <clears throat> the High Inquisitor will henceforth have supreme authority over all punishments, sanctions, and removal of privileges pertaining to the students of Hogwarts, and the power to alter such punishments, sanctions, removal of privileges, as may have been ordered by other staff members. Signed, Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, Order of Merlin, First Class, etc., etc. She rolled up the parchment and put it back into her handbag, still smiling. So, I really think I will have to ban these two from playing Quidditch ever again, she said, looking from Harry to George and back again. Harry felt the snitch fluttering madly in his hand. Ban us? He said, and his voice sounded strangely distant from playing. From playing ever again? Uh, yes. Mr. Potter, I think a lifelong ban ought to do the trick, said Umbridge, her smile widening still further as she watched him struggle to comprehend what she had said. You and Mr. Weasley here, and I think, to be safe, this young man's twin ought to be stopped too. If his teammates had not restrained him, I feel sure he would have attacked young Mr. Malfoy as well. I will want their broomsticks confiscated, of course, I shall keep them safely in my office to make sure there is no infringement of my ban. But I am not unreasonable, Professor McGonagall, she continued, turning back to Professor McGonagall, who was now standing as though carved from ice staring at her. The rest of the team can continue playing. I saw no signs of violence from any of them. Well, good afternoon to you. And with a look of utmost satisfaction, Umbridge left the room, leaving a horrified silence in her wake. Yeah, man. That, <laughs> they got the old boot. They got the band, baby. They said, you guys can't. What really kind of sucks is, like, Fred kind of got the shaft here because he actually yeah. didn't attack. He tried to, but he didn't yeah. actually do anything. And she's like, oh, we're going to be safe, and uh, you're banned too, Fred. So we go from, like, so a pretty solid Quidditch team outside of Ron kind of not being good. But other than that, they're a pretty solid Quidditch team to, like, now they're down two pretty good beaters and like the best secret they've had since charlie weasley like you know what i mean like now now like what are they gonna do in the in the house cup race for the for the, for the quidditch cup man I don't, I don't know uh they they are in a bit of trouble yes it's like uh when your giants lost saquon barkley sterling shepherd and then lost uh daniel jones at the same time well, <laughs> like it's dude what the, the difference <laughs> what is, is that 
the Gryffindor Quidditch team was good, and the Giants were not. <laughs> so, no, the Giants. Fair, fair enough. My Falcons aren't good either, man. Sad day. <laughs> we always but got yeah, the dude. future to look forward to, baby. No, but I'm I'm just very happy that I got to see in two like in two separate times the Giants win the Super Bowl in my lifetime in 07 and 11. So that was really cool. So if it never happens again, whatever. But <laughs> uh, no, but to, to kind of pick up here. By the way, uh, Professor Umbridge's position is the High Inquisitor, not Inquistador. Oh, sorry, <laughs> like, Inquisitor. There. So when you say when you said in, like when you said Inquistador, it reminded me of like the Spanish <laughs> conquistadors that came over on like the boats from Spain back in the 1400s. <laughs> oh, yeah, so. sorry, my bad. Yeah, it's the High Inquisitor. But uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> I'll go ahead and pick up from there. Just got a couple bullet points, but um, yeah. What well, the cool thing is is what we learned there in that on that page is that McGonagall was the one that overrode Umbridge by going to Dumbledore over her head. So first it was Angelina right. going over Umbridge's head to McGonagall, then McGonagall went over Umbridge's head to Dumbledore. So that's kind of what happened there, and that kind of led the reason why this educational decree number twenty five. Uh, came to exist really so uh now we're going on to page 418 ron actually tells harry he's going to resign and harry tells him the repercussions of that he's like listen dude like if you resign like we're gonna have no one on the team like we're, we might as well not show up to play like you know you you resigning is not going to help anybody at all uh but the good news is because on page 419 what hermione says she's like well i could think of one thing that might cheer you both up Oh, yeah, said Harry skeptically. Yeah, Hermione turning away from the pitch black, snowy flecked windows, a broad smile spreading across her face. Hagrid's back. Hagrid's back, baby! Which is awesome because he spent this whole time, like 420 pages into the book, we haven't seen Hagrid. Now he's back. They see the lights in this cabin, and so they decide to uh, dust off the old invisibility cloak and uh, take a little journey down to Hagrid's cabin. So some pretty cool bullet points here. Page 421. Hagrid's in rough shape. His hair is matted with blood. His left eye is reduced to like a puffy slit. There's cuts on his face and hands and like possible broken ribs by the way he's moving. So Hagrid's arrived, but he's in way worse shape than anyone would have hoped for. But he seems to be very joyous and like happy. It's not like, you know, he's terrified or like so happy to be back and like he's trying to like heal up like... He's still himself. He's still good old Jolly Hagrid, even though he looks like he was beaten a couple inches from death. But anyways, um, and page 422, they finally get Hagrid to admit that he and Madame Maxime were looking for giants. So what I'll do is on page 424 uh, through 434, I'm going to read you a little bit about Hagrid's mission here. Because this is going to tell you exactly a little bit about what the real life giants are like and why they are so avoided by wizards. So let me start here on page 424. So, Hagrid glared at him through his one open eye. Harry looked right back, an expression of innocent determination on his face. All right, said Hagrid in a resigned voice. He bent down and tugged the dragon stake out of Fang's mouth. Oh, Hagrid, don't you? It's not hygienic. Hermione began, but Hagrid already slapped the meat back over his swollen eye, and he took another fortifying gulp of tea and said... Well, we set off right after last term ended. Madame Maxime went with you then, Hermione interjected. Yeah, that's right, said Hagrid. And a softened expression appeared on the few inches of his face that were not obscured by a beard or a green stake. <laughs> yeah, it was just a pair of us, and I'll tell you, she's not afraid of roughing it, Olympe. You know, she's a fine, well-dressed woman, 
And knowing where we were going, I wondered how she'd feel about clambering over boulders and sleeping in caves and that, but she never complained once. <laughs> you knew where you were going, Harry repeated. You knew where the giants were? Well, Dumbledore knew when he told us, said Hagrid. Are they hidden? Is it a secret where they are? Not really, said Hagrid, shaking his shaggy head. It's just that most wizards aren't bothered where they are as long as it's a good long away from them. But where they are is very difficult to get to, for humans anyways, so we needed Dumbledore's instructions. It took us about a month to get there. A month? Said Ron, as though he had never heard of such a journey lasting a ridiculously long time. But why couldn't you just take a port key or something? And there was an odd expression in Hagrid's unobscured eye as he surveyed Ron. It was almost pitying. We're being watched, Ron. What do you mean? You don't understand, said Hagrid. The Ministry's keeping an eye on Dumbledore and anyone they reckon is in league with him. And we knew about that, said Harry quickly, keen to hear the rest of the Hagrid's story. We know about the Ministry watching Dumbledore. So you couldn't use magic to get there, asked Ron, looking thunderstruck. You had to act like muggles all the way? Well, not exactly all the way, said Hagrid occasionally. We just had to be careful, because Olympe and me, we stick out a bit. And Ron made a stifled noise somewhere between a snort and a sniff, and hastily took a gulp of tea. So we're not hard to follow. We were pretending we were going on a holiday together. So we got into France, and we made like we were heading for where Olympe's school is, because we know we were being tailed by someone from the ministry. We had to go slow, because I'm not really supposed to use magic, and we knew the ministry would be looking for a reason to turn us in. But we managed to give the Burke tail on us the good old slip around around Dijon. Ooh, Dijon, said Hermione excitedly. I've been there on holiday. Did you see? And she fell silent at the look at Ron's face. Well, we chanced a bit of magic after that, and it wasn't a bad journey. Ran into a couple of mad trolls on the Polish border, and I had a slight disagreement with a vampire in a pub in Minx. But apart from that, couldn't have been smoother. And then we reached the place, and we started trekking up through the mountains, looking for signs of them. We had to lay off the magic once we got near them, partly because they don't like wizards, and we didn't want to put their backs up too soon, and partly because Dumbledore had warned us, you know, who was bound to be after the giants and all as well. Said it was odds on he'd already sent a messenger already. Told us to be very careful of drawing attention to ourselves as we got near in case there were Death Eaters around. Hagrid paused for a long draft of tea. Go on, said Harry urgently. Well, <coughs> we found him, said Harry Baldy, Hagrid Baldy. We went over a ridge one night, and there they were, spread out underneath us. Little fires burning below and huge shadows. It was like watching a bits of the mountain move. How big are they? asked Ron in a hushed voice. About 20 feet, said Hagrid casually. Some of the bigger ones might have been 25 feet. How many were there? Oh, I reckon about 70 or 80. Is that all? said Hermione. Yep, said Hagrid sadly. 80 left. And there was loads once. Must have been a hundred different tribes all over the world. But they've been dying out for ages. Wizards killed a few, of course, but mostly they killed each other. And now they're dying out faster than ever. They're not made to live bunched up together like that. Dumbledore says it's our fault. It was the wizards who forced them to go and made them live a good long way from us, and they had no choice but to stick together for their own protection. So, you saw them in what? said Harry. Well, we waited till the morning. Didn't want to go sneaking up on them in the dark for our own safety. About three in the morning, they fell asleep just where they were sitting, but we didn't dare sleep. For one thing, we wanted to make sure Novin woke up and came up where we were, and for another, the snoring was unbelievable. It caused an avalanche near the morning. <laughs> Anyways, once it was light, we went down to see them. Just like that, said Ron, looking awestruck. 
you walked right into a giant camp? Well, Dumbledore told us how to do it, said Hagrid. Give the Gur gifts. Show some respect, you know? Give the what gifts? Oh, the Gurg means the chief. How could you tell which one was the Gurg, asked Ron. Hagrid grunted in amusement. No problem. He was the bigly- biggest and ugliest and the laziest, sitting there waiting to be brought food by the others. Dead goats and such like. Name a carcass. I put him at 22, 23 feet, and the weight of a couple bull elephants. Skin like rhino, hide and all. And you just walked up to him, said Hermione breathlessly. Well, down to him, where he was lying in the valley. There were there was this dip between four pretty high mountains, see? Beside a mountain lake, and Carcass was lying by the lake roaring at the others to feed him and his wife. Olympia and I went down the mountainside. But didn't they try to kill you when they saw you? <laughs> it was definitely on some of their minds, said Hagrid, shrugging. But we did what Dumbledore told us to do. Which was to hold our gifts high and keep our eyes on the gurg and ignore the others. So that's what we did. And the rest of them went quiet and watched us pass. And when we got right up to Carcass's feet, we bowed and put our present down in front of him. What do you give a giant? Asked Ron eagerly. Food? Nah, he can get all the food all right for himself. We took him magic. Giants like magic. Just don't like us using it against him. Anyways, the first day we gave him a branch of Gubrathian fire. Wow, said Hermione softly, but Harry and Ron both frowned in puzzlement. A branch of everlasting fire, said Hermione irritably. You ought to know that by now. Professor Flitwick's mentioned it at least twice in class. Well, anyways, said Hagrid quickly intervening before Ron could answer back. Dumbledore would bewitch this branch to burn evermore, which isn't something any wizard could do. And so I lies it down in the snow from Carcass about a couple feet away and say, A gift to the Gurg of the Giants from Albus Dumbledore, who sends his respectful greetings. And what did Carcass say? asked Harry eagerly. Nothing, said Hagrid. Didn't speak English. You're kidding. It didn't matter, <laughs> said Hagrid imperturbably. Dumbledore had warned us that this might happen. Carcass knew enough to yell for a couple of giants who knew our lingo, and they translated for us. Did he like your present? Oh, yeah, it went down a storm once I understood what it was, said Hagrid, turning the dragon stake over to press the cooler side to his swollen eye. Very pleased. So then I said, Albus Dumbledore asks the Gurg to speak with his messenger when he returns tomorrow with another gift. Why couldn't you speak with him that day, asked Hermione. Well, Dumbledore wants to take it very slow. Let him see we keep our promises. We'll come back tomorrow with another present. And then we do come back with another present. Gives a good impression, see? And gives him time to test out the first present and find out if it's a good one. And get him eager for more. In any case, giants like Carcass overload him with information, and they'll just kill you to simplify things. So we bowed out of the way and went off and found ourselves a nice little cave to spend that night in. And the following morning, we went back this time, and we found a carcass sitting up, waiting for us, looking all eager. And you talked to him? Oh, yeah. First, we presented him with a nice battle helmet. Goblin made. Indestructible, you know. And then, we sat down and we talked. What did he say? Well, not much, said Hagrid, but he listened mostly. But there were some good signs. He heard a Dumbledore. He heard that Dumbledore argued against the killings of the last giant in Britain. Carcass seemed to be quite interested in what Dumbledore had to say. And a few of the others, especially the ones who had some English, gathered round and listened too. We were hopeful when we left that day. Promised to come back the next day with another present. But that night, it all went wrong. What do you mean? Well, like I said, they're not meant to live together, giants, said Hagrid sadly. Not in big groups like that. They can't help themselves, and they half kill each other every few weeks. The men fight each other, and the women fight each other, and the remnants of the old tribes fight each other, 
And that's even without squabbles over food and the best fires and sleeping spots. You'd think, seeing as how their whole race is about to be finished, they'd lay off each other, but... Uh, Hagrid sighed deeply. That night a fight broke out. We saw it from the mouths of our cave looking down the valley. Went on for hours. You wouldn't believe the noise. And when the sun came up, the snow was scarlet, and his head was lying at the bottom of the lake. Whose head? gasped Hermione. Carcasses, said Hagrid heavily. There was a new gurg. Golgamath, he sighed deeply. Well, we hadn't bargained on a new gurg two days after we made friendly with the first one, and we had a funny feeling Golgamath wouldn't be so keen to listen to us, but we had to try. You went to speak with him after you watched him rip another giant's head off? Of course we did. We hadn't gone all that way to give up after two days, so we went down with the next present we had meant to give the carcass. And I knew it was a no-go before I opened my mouth. He was sitting there wearing Carcass's helmet, leering at us as we got nearer. He's a massive one, one of the biggest ones there. Black hair and matching teeth and a necklace of bones. Human-looking bones, some of them. Well, I gave it a go, and he held out a great, I held out a great roll of dragon skin and said, A gift for the gurg of the giants. And the next thing I knew, I was hanging upside down in the air by my feet. Two of his mates had grabbed me. Hermione had clapped her hands to her mouth. How'd you get out of that? Well, I wouldn't have if... Olympia hadn't been there. She pulled out her wand and did some of the fastest spell work I have ever seen. Ruddy Marvelous! Hit the two holding me right between the eyes with a conjunctivitis curse and they dropped me straight away. But we were in trouble then, because we'd use magic against them. And that's what giants hate about wizards. So we had to leg it and we knew there was no way we were going to be able to march into the camp again. Blimey, Hagrid, said Ron quietly. So how come it's taking you so long to get home if you were only there for three days? We didn't leave after three days, said Hagrid, looking outraged. Dumbledore is relying on us. But you've just said there was no way he could go back. Not by daylight we couldn't, no. We just had to rethink a bit. So we spent a couple days lying low up in the caves and watching, and what we saw wasn't good. Did he rip off more heads? Said <laughs> asked Hermione, he sounded squeamish. No, said Hagrid, but I wish he had. What do you mean? I mean, soon we found out that he didn't object to all wizards. Just us. Death Eaters, said Harry quickly. Yep, said Hagrid darkly. A couple of them were visiting him every day, bringing gifts to the Gurg, and he wasn't dangling them upside down. How do you know they were Death Eaters, asked Ron. Because I recognize one of them. MacNair, remember him? The bloke they sent to kill Buckbeak? Maniac he is. Likes killing as much as Golgamath. No wonder they got on so well. So MacNair's persuaded the Giants to join you-know-who? Said Hermione desperately. Hold your hippogriffs! I haven't finished my story yet, said Hagrid indignantly, who considered... He did not want to tell him anything at first. Now seemed to be rather enjoying himself. Me and Olympe talked it over and agreed. Just because a gurg looked like favoring you-know-who didn't mean all of them would. So we had to try and persuade some of the others, the ones who hadn't watched, who, the ones who hadn't wanted Golgamath's gurg. And how could you tell which ones they were? Well, they were the ones being beaten to a pulp, weren't they? Said Hagrid patiently. The ones with any sense were keeping out of Golgamath's way, hiding out in caves round the gully just like we were. So we decided to go poking around the caves by night and see if we couldn't persuade a few of them. He would poke around dark caves looking for giants, said Ron with odd respect in his voice. Well, it wasn't the giants who worried us most. And we were more concerned about the Death Eaters. Dumbledore had told us before we went not to tangle with them if we could avoid it. And the trouble was they knew we were around. I suspect Golgamath told them about us. At night, when the giants were sleeping and we wanted to be creeping into the caves, McNair and the other one were sneaking around the mountains looking for us. I was hard put to stop Olympe from jumping out at them, said Hagrid, the corners of his mouth lifting in his wild beard. She was raring to attack him. She's something when she's roused, Olympe, 
Fire, you know. Suspect it's the French in her. <laughs> and Hagrid gazed misty-eyed into the fire. And Harry allowed him his 30 seconds reminiscence before clearing his throat loudly. So what happened? Did you ever get near the other giants? What? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah, on the third night after Carcass was killed, we crept out of the cave we'd been hiding in and headed back down into the gully, keeping our eyes skinned for the Death Eaters. Got inside a few of the caves. No go. Then in about the sixth one, we found three giants hiding. Well, the cave must have been cramped. Was it room to swing an easel? <laughs> Didn't they attack you when they saw you? Asked Hermione. Well, they probably would have done if they'd been in any condition, said Hagrid, but they were badly hurt, all three of them. Golgomasalot had beaten them unconscious. They'd woken up and crawled into the nearest shelter they could find. Anyway, one of them had a bit of English and translated for the others, and what we had to say didn't seem to go down too badly, so we kept going back, visiting the wounded. I reckon we had about six or seven of them convinced at one point. Six or seven? said Ron Eagley. Well, that's not bad. Are they going over here to start fighting you-know-who with us? But Hermione said, what do you mean at one point, Hagrid? Hagrid looked at her sadly. Golgomass lot raided the caves, and the ones that survived didn't want no more to do with us after that. So there aren't any giants coming, said Ron, looking disappointed. Nope, said Hagrid, leaving his seat high as he turned over his stake again and applied the cooler side to his face. But we did what we meant to do. We gave him Dumbledore's message, and some of them heard it, and I expect some of them will remember it. Just maybe the ones that don't want to stay around Golgomouth will move out of the mountains, and there's got to be a chance to remember Dumbledore's friendly to him. Could be they'll come. And Snow was filling up the window now, and Harry became aware that his knees were over-soaked through. Fang was drooling on him and Hagrid in his lap. Hagrid, said Hermione quietly after a few. What? Did you, uh, did you hear anything about your mother while you were there? Hagrid's unobscured eyes rested upon her, and Hermione looked scared. I'm sorry, I, I forget it. Dead. Hagrid grunted. Died years ago. They told me. Oh, I'm really sorry, said Hermione, her small voice. Ah, no need. Can't remember very much. Wasn't a great mother. Well, well you can't see. I still haven't explained why you even got into the state or why you're back so late. Sirius says Madame Maxime got back ages ago. Who attacked you? I haven't been attacked, said Hagrid emphatically. I. But the rest of the words were drowned out in a sudden rapping on the door. Hermione gasped, her mug slipped through the fingers and smashed on the floor, and Fang yelped. And all four of them stared at the window beside the doorway, and the shadow of somebody small and squat rippled across a thin curtain. And with that, I'll turn it over to Chase, who will tell you a little bit about who was there at that time. <laughs> it's got the bad girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, right here, it, you hear Ron go, it's her, Ron whispered. Get under here, Harry said quickly, seizing the invisibility cloak. He rolled it over himself and Hermione while Ron tore around the table and dived beneath the cloak as well. Huddled together, they backed away into a corner. Fang was barking madly at the door. Hagrid looked, clo looked thoroughly confused. Hagrid, hide our mugs! Hagrid seized Harry and Ron's mugs and shoved them under the cushion in Fang's basket. Fang was now leaping up at the door, and Hagrid pushed him out of the way with his foot and pulled it open. Professor Umbridge was standing in the doorway, wearing her green tweed cloak and a matching hat with ear flaps lips pursed she leaned back so as to see Hagrid's face she barely reached his navel so she said slowly and loudly as though speaking to somebody deaf you're Hagrid aren't you without waiting for an answer she strolled into the room he, her bulging eyes rolling in every direction get away she snapped waving her handbag at Fang 
who had bounded up to her and was attempting to lick her face. Urgh! I don't, I don't want to be rude, said Hagrid, staring at her. But who the ruddy hell are you? My name is Dolores Unbridge. Her eyes were sweeping the cabin. Twice they stared directly into the corner where Harry stood, sandwiched between Ron and Hermione. Dolores Umbridge, Harry said, uh, Hagrid said, sounding thoroughly confused. I thought you were one of them. Ministry, Don, you work with Fudge? I was senior undersecretary to the minister, yes, said Umbridge, now pacing around the cabin, taking in every tiny detail within, from the haversack against the wall to the abandoned traveling cloak. I am now the defense against the dark arts teacher. Uh, that's brave of you, said Hagrid. Uh, there's not many take that job anymore. In Hogwarts High, in, in Hogwarts High Inquisitor, said Umbridge, giving no sign that she had heard him. Was that, said Hagrid, frowning. Precisely what I was going to ask, said Umbridge, pointing out the broken shards of china on the floor that had been Hermione's mug. Oh, said Hagrid, with a most unhelpful glance towards the corner where Harry, Ron, and Hermione stood hidden. Ah, uh, that was, that was Fang. He broke a mug, so I, uh, had to use this one instead. Hagrid pointed to the mug from which he had been drinking one. Hand still clamped over the dragon stake pressed to his eye. Umbridge stood facing him now, taking in every detail of his appearance instead of the cabins. I heard voices she said quietly. I was talking to Fang, said Hagrid stoutly. And was he talking back to you? Well, in a manner of speaking, said Hagrid, looking uncomfortable as sometimes safe. Fang's near enough human. There are three sets of footprints in the snow leading from the castle doors to your cabin, said Umbridge sleekily. Hermione gasped. Harry clapped a hand over his over her mouth. Luckily, Fang was sniffing loudly around the hem of Professor Umbridge's robes, and she did not appear to have heard. Well, I just got back, said Hagrid, waving an enormous hand at the haversack. Maybe somewhere call, uh, to call her later, and I missed them. There are no footsteps leading away from your cabin door. Well, I don't, I, I don't know what that'd be said Hagrid, tugging nervously at his beard and again glancing towards the corner where Harry, Ron, and Hermione had stood, as though asking for help. Um, Umbridge wheeled around and strode the length of the cabin, looking around carefully. She bent and peered under the bed. She opened Hagrid's covers. She passed within two inches of where Harry, Ron, and Hermione stood pressed against the wall. Harry actually pulled in his stomach as she walked away. After looking carefully inside the enormous cauldron Hagrid used for cooking, she wheeled around again and said, What has happened to you? How did you sustain those injuries? Hagrid hastily removed the dragon stake from his face, which in Harry's opinion was a mistake, because the black and purple bruising all around his eye was now clearly visible, not to mention the large amount of fresh and congealed blood on his face. Oh, I, I had a bit of an accident, he said lamely. What sort of accident? I, I, tr I tripped. You tripped, she repeated coolly. Yeah, that's right, over over a friend's broomstick. I don't fly myself. Well, uh, look at look aside me. I don't reckon there's a broomstick that'll hold me. A friend of mine breeds Abraxan horses. I don't know if uh, you've ever seen him. Big beast winged, you know. 
I've uh, had a bit of a ride on one of them, uh, and it was, Where have you been? asked Umbridge, cutting coolly through Hagrid's babbling. Where have I uh, been yet? Been, yes, she said. Term started more than two months ago. Another teacher has had to cover your classes? None of your colleagues has been able to give me any information to where your, of your whereabouts. You left no address. Where have you been? There was a pause in which Hagrid stared at her with his newly uncovered eye. Harry could almost hear his brain working furiously. I've, I've uh, been away from me health, he said. For your health? Repeated Umbridge, her eyes traveled over Hagrid's discolored and swollen face. Dragon blood dripped gently onto his waistcoat in the silence. I see. Yeah, said Hagrid. A bit of fresh air, you know? Yes, as gamekeeper, fresh air must be so difficult to come by, said Umbridge sweetly. The small patch of Hagrid's face that was not black or purple flushed. Well... Change of scene, you know. Uh, mountain scenery, said Umbridge swiftly. She knows, Harry thought desperately. Mountains, Hagrid repeated, clearly thinking fast. Nope, south of France for me. A bit of sun and, and sea. Really? Said Umbridge. You don't have much of a tan. Yeah, well, uh, sensitive skin, said Hagrid. Attempting an in gratiating smile. Harry noticed that the two of his teeth had been knocked out. Umbridge looked at him coldly. coldly. His smile faltered. Then she hoisted her handbag a little higher into the crook of her arm and said, I shall, of course, be informing the minister of your late return. Uh, right, said Hagrid, nodding. You ought to know that a high inquis inquisitor... It is my unfortunate but necessary duty to inspect my fellow teachers, so I dare say we shall meet again soon enough. She turned sharply and marched back to the door. You're inspecting us? Hagrid repeated blankly, looking after her. Oh, yes, said Umbridge softly, looking back at him with her hand on the door handle. The ministry is determined to weed out unsatisfactory teachers. Hagrid, good night. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, my man. Bro, I don't Jeez. know if the rest of the listeners think the same way, but I want to stab myself in the eyes when you try to do an Umbridge accent. It's the worst thing <laughs> in the world. You are a guy trying to do a small girl's voice. Let's not do that. <laughs> I think it's Take fantastic. Take this pen, shove it in great. this eye, and then you make Hagrid sound like a cowboy. My goodness. Anyway, I Hagrid, let me go. that's the way I pictured it. And that's the way it was. <laughs> He was a cowboy. He went out west with the mountains. He well, what did they say in uh, Dumb and Dumber? That John Denver was full of shit, man. <laughs> That's so bad. Ooh, the Umbridge. Ooh, <coughs> 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 oh, so good, man. I'm gonna have nightmares so about that. So good. I might get abandoned on the I'm Umbridge have thing. Just nightmares like about that tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I'll take it oh, from page three. Point four thirty nine. She's psycho. Yes, she sucks. <laughs> That's something that we knew from a long time. She sucks. But page four thirty nine. Just some bullet points here. Uh, Hermione pleads with Hagrid to keep his lessons mundane, but like, he kind of shakes her off. Like, no, I'm gonna do what I want to do anyways. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like, and he also actually foreshadows um, 
a type of animal that we we actually said Professor Grubbly Plank said it, but he hasn't said it yet. Uh, he says he thinks he's got the only domestic herd in Britain, which is kind of like you know a little bit of a foreshadow that's going to come, and that's going to come in the next ten pages. So uh, he even says on page four forty six they're dead useful and clever, referring to them, which is a foreshadow of what they use these animals for later on in this book. But anyways, um, you know just to talk about Hermione and how like very stern she is about the fact that she's going to make Hagrid <laughs> do lessons the boring way but the way that he won't get in trouble she says then I'll go back again tomorrow said Hermione determinedly and I'll plan his lessons for him I have to I don't care if she throws out Trelawney but she's not taking Hagrid so going into the next chapter here page uh, 441 chapter 21 the eye of the snake uh, I just thought it was funny Fred and George hit Ron in the face with a snowball uh, <laughs> so going on to page 446 a couple pages into that uh, we actually finally learn what was pulling those horses cages, carriages all these years we learn about Thestrals for the first time in its entirety we've heard Professor Grubbly Pink uh, mention them but we don't know what that, those were yet we've also seen Harry look at them see them but not know what they are well now Hagrid's here and he shows them what Thestrals do and what they actually are and so to give you guys, an, uh, now that we can actually finally debate that one topic, not debate it, but like my, I can actually bring up that full plot hole in its entirety, like, Thestrals are creatures that you can only see if you have witnessed somebody dying, right? And so that's what, we finally learned that. This is now a fact that we can talk about freely because we've gotten to this point in the book. And that's kind of right. brought up my plot hole from before. Is like Harry saw his parents die in front of him at one years old. He should have been able to see these things from day one. You know, Luna Lovegood saw her mom. You know, I, I, I guess I can't get too far ahead, but we learn it later on in here. Like why Luna can see them. There's a reason Luna can see them. There's a reason Hagrid can see them. There's a reason certain people can. It's because they witnessed somebody dying. And if that's the case, Harry should have been able to see them from the first day in Sorcerer's Stone. So I'll, I'll bring up for that yeah. there. But going on here. Taking some more bullet points. We learned that, uh, Professor, well, Professor Umbridge arrives to inspect Hagrid's class. She wasn't there to start, but she arrives a little bit late. And what kind of sucks is, like, who do these people have their Care of Magical Creatures class with? With the Slytherins. So we already know a little bit about how this is going to go down. <laughs> so so uh, she, like, Tenebris is, I thought this was kind of cool. This is a cool little fact, but I put this, like, Tenebris is Hagrid's favorite Thestral, because it was the first one that was born in the Forbidden Forest. That was something that was mentioned there on page 447. thought that was pretty cool. But uh, Professor Umbridge baits the students into saying negative things about Hagrid and his class. Like, she literally sets up questions in a way that only negative responses could come from it. So she really kind of screws him over. And we kind of knew it was going to happen. She, He's Dumbledore's very, very first, like right-hand man, right? Like, if you think of who's most loyal to Dumbledore, it's Hagrid. There's nobody else yeah. that you think of that comes to mind. So she wants to make sure that she can get Hagrid out of there, uh, and so she baits her questions to make them say negative things about him. And even on page 449, this is actually really cool, because this is a nice little foreshadow here as well, is uh, Hagrid lets us know that Thestrals have an amazing sense of direction. All you have to do is tell them where you want to go. So that's going to be big. That's going to play a huge role coming up later into this book. Not this episode, but the, 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 towards a little bit towards the end of the book, that comes up pretty big. Now, 
Neville, we learned that he saw his granddad die, and that's why Neville can see them. And on page 450, I'm going to read up just this couple passages here up until the last paragraph, but this is what Hermione has to say about Professor Umbridge and what they go on from there. That foul, lying, twisted old gargoyle stormed Hermione half an hour later as they made their way back up to the castle through the channels that they made earlier in the snow. You see what she's up to? It's her thing about half-breeds all over again. She's trying to make Hagrid out to be some kind of dim-witted troll just because he has a giantess for a mother. And oh, it's not fair. That really wasn't a bad lesson at all. I mean, alright, if it had been the blast ended Scroots again, but Thestros are fine. In fact, for Hagrid, they're really good. Umbridge said they're dangerous. Well, it's like Hagrid said, they can look after themselves, said Hermione impatiently, and I suppose a teacher like Grubbly Plank wouldn't usually show them to us before Newt level, but, well, they are very interesting, aren't they? The way that some people can see them and some people can't? I wish I could. Do you? Harry asked her quietly. She looked horror-struck. Oh, oh, Harry, I'm so sorry. No, no, of course I don't. It's just a, it was a really stupid thing to say. It's okay, he said quickly. Don't worry. I'm just so many surprised so many people could see them, said Ron. Three in a class. Yeah, Weasley. We were just wondering, said a malicious voice nearby, unheard by any of them in the muffling snow. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle were walking right along beside them. Do you reckon if you, someone's, if you saw someone snuff it, you'd be able to see the quaffle better? So, just a little dickhead he is. And with that, I'll turn it <laughs> over to you, Chase, and uh, you'll take it from there, man. Yeah, man. No, that was that was awesome. I wanted to say uh, the Thestrals, I will say I was impressed with this in the movie. The way they uh, did the visuals for it i thought it was pretty spot on like the way they represented the thestrals how it was like black and leathery looked almost snake-like uh i thought it was interesting like i mean they got that pretty on point like the way they did umbridge and that like they they have done some things some things good <laughs> i mean a lot of things uh on the opposite end but this one i gotta give them props on <laughs> i thought that was pretty good um, the next thing I had was, you know, December arrived. Did you have anything in between that you wanted to add? Uh, the only things I had, because I'm not sure where December arrives on your pages, but I have a couple things here that are just quick things I can just say just in case they come before that. Um, basically, yeah. the next thing I've got is on page 453, Angelina tells Harry that they replaced him at Secret with Ginny Weasley and Fred and George yeah. at Beaters with Andrew Kirk and Jack Sloper. Is that kind of where you're at? That's that's about where I'm at, but you take it away. Well, that, that, I'll take away on 457. Okay, well. cool, cool. So then I then I'll go ahead and, into page 454 because I got I do got two more things then. Uh, page yeah. 454. They had their last DA meeting before the holidays, and everyone's making great progress, especially Neville. And at page 455, Cho hangs back crying, lamenting the fact that if Cedric knew all of this, like she of all these spells, like she feels that he'd still be alive. And Harry assures her that like Cedric did know this stuff, but if Voldemort really wants to kill you, you don't stand a chance. Like it doesn't matter. Like you know, Cedric was one of the best ones. Like he was in the lead of the Triwizard Tournament, and he did it without really any help. You know, Harry had someone to kind of help him the whole way. Granted, Harry was three years younger, you know, so that has a lot to do with it too. But <laughs> Cedric was was no slouch, man. Cedric was a very talented wizard. Um, yeah. So then I'll go ahead and let you take on page. Uh, 457 because i know you're probably going to get into uh when they have their little um little uh, <laughs> so i'll let you uh i'll let you take that man so uh finally man this is this is harry's moment right so uh you know they're going back and forth and it says uh 
She hiccuped at the sound of Voldemort's name, but stared at Harry without flinching. You survived when you were just a baby, she said quietly. Yeah, well, said Harry wearily, moving towards the door. I don't know why, nor does anyone else, so it's nothing to be proud of. Oh, don't go, said Cho, sounding tearful again. I'm really sorry to get all upset like this. I, I didn't mean to. She hiccuped again. She was very pretty, even when her eyes were red and puffy. Harry felt thoroughly miserable. He had been so pleased just with a Merry Christmas. I know it must be horrible for you, she said, mopping her eyes on her sleeve again. Me mentioning Cedric when you saw him die? I suppose you just want to forget it. Forget about it. Harry did not say anything to this. It was quite true, but he felt heartless saying it. You're, you're a really good teacher, you know, said Cho with a watery smile. I've never been able to stun anything before. Thanks, said Harry awkwardly. They looked at each other for a long moment. Harry felt a burning desire to run from the room and, at the same time, a complete inability to move his feet. Mistletoe, said Cho quietly, pointing at the ceiling over his head. Yeah, said Harry. His mouth was very dry. It's probably full of nargles, though. What are nargles? No idea, said Harry. She had moved closer. His brain seemed to have been stunned. You'd have to ask Looney, I mean, Luna, I mean. Cho made a funny noise halfway between a sob and a laugh. She was even nearer him now. He could have counted the freckles on her nose. I really like you, Harry. He could not think. A tingling sensation was spreading throughout him paralyzing his arms, legs, and brain. She was much too close. He could see every tear clinging to her eyelashes. <laughs> he returned to the... <laughs> Crazy, right? Yeah! Mmm! <laughs> Big Harry stepping up to the plate. Yeah! Can we, can we <laughs> yeah. not, like, normalize children's sexuality, Chase? Sir, this is, this is teenage <laughs> innocence! All I said was stepping up to the plate, man. He didn't get the home run, if you know what I mean. He just, he didn't even get the first base. Oh, that's who, well, I guess he got the first base. Yeah, he was, he didn't lap him yet, though. He These are children. Children. Oh, children, children, children. Our show is explicit. I'm just kidding now. We try to keep it clean. Anyways, so, time is of the essence, has passed at this point. He returned to the common room half an hour later to find Hermione and Ron, a little bit of foreshadowing there, in the best seats by the fire. Nearly everybody else had gone to bed. Hermione was writing a very long letter. She had already filled half a roll of parchment, which was dangling from the edge of the table. Ron was lying on the hearth rug, trying to finish his transfiguration homework. What kept you? He asked as Harry sank into the armchair next to Hermione's. Harry did not answer. He was in a state of shock. Half of them wanted to tell Ron and Hermione what had just happened, but the other half wanted to take the secret with him to the grave. Are you all right, Harry? Hermione asked, peering at him over the tip of her quill. Harry gave a half-hearted shrug. In truth, he didn't know whether he was all right or not. What's up? said Ron, hoisting himself up his elbow to get a clearer view of Harry. What happened? Harry didn't know how to set out about telling them and still wasn't sure whether he wanted to. Just as he had decided not to say anything, Hermione took matters out of his hands. Is it Cho? She asked in a business-like way. Did she corner you after the meeting? 
Numbly surprised, Harry nodded. Ron sniggered, breaking off when Hermione caught his eye. Sir, what'd she want? He asked in a mock casual voice. She... Harry began rather hoarsely. He cleared his throat and tried again. She, uh... Er, did you kiss? Asked Hermione briskly. Ron sat up so fast that he sent his ink bottle flying all over the rug. Disregarding this completely, he stared avidly at Harry. Well? He demanded. Harry looked from Ron's expression of mingled curiosity and hilarity to Hermione's slight frown and nodded. Ha! Ron made a triumphant gesture with his fist and went into a, rash, a rash, rachis, a rachis peal of laughter that made a several timid-looking second years over beside the window jump. A reluctant grin spread over Harry's face as he watched Ron rolling around on the hearthrug. Hermione gave Ron a look of deep disgust and returned to her letter. Well, Ron said finally, looking up at Harry, how was it? Harry considered for a moment, wet, he said truthfully. Ron made a noise that might have indicated jubilation or disgust. It was hard to tell. Because she was crying? Harry continued heavily. Oh, said Ron, his smile fading slightly. Are you that bad at kissing? Uh, dunno, said Harry, who hadn't considered this and immediately felt rather worried. Maybe I am. Of course you're not, said Hermione absently, still scribbling away at her letter. How do you know, said Ron in a sharp voice. Because Cho spends half her time crying these days, said Hermione vaguely. She does it at meaningless, at mealtimes, in the loose, all over the place. You'd think a bit of kissing would cheer her up, said Ron, grinning. Ron said Hermione in a dignified voice, dipping the point of the quill into her ink pot. You're the most insensitive wart I have ever had a misfortune to meet. What's that supposed to mean? said Ron indignantly. What sort of person cries while someone's kissing them? Yeah, said Harry, slightly desperately. Who does? Hermione looked out at the pair of them with an almost pitying expression on her face. Don't you understand how Cho's feeling at the moment? she asked. No, said Harry and Ron together. Hermione sighed and laid down her quill. Well, obviously she's feeling very sad because of Cedric dying. Then I expect she's feeling confused because she likes Cedric and now she likes Harry. She can't work out who she likes best. Then she'll be feeling guilty, thinking it's an insult to Cedric's memory to be kissing Harry at all. And she'll be worrying about what everyone else might say about her if she starts going out with Harry. And she probably can't work out what her feelings towards Harry are anyways. Because... He was the one who was with Cedric when Cedric died, so that's all very mixed up and painful. Oh, and she's afraid she's going to be thrown off the Ravenclaw Quidditch team because she's been flying so badly. A slightly stunned silence greeted the end of the speech. Then Ron said, One person can't feel all that at once. They'd explode. Just because you've got the emotional outrage of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all have, said Hermione nastily, picking up her quill again. She was the one who started it, said Harry. I wouldn't have... She just sort of came at me, and then the next thing, she's crying all over me. I didn't know what to do. Don't blame you, mate, said Ron, looking alarmed at the very thought. You just had to be nice to her, said Hermione, looking up anxiously. You were, weren't you? Well, said Harry, an unpleasant heat creeping up his face. I sort of patted her on the back a bit. Hermione looked as though she was restraining herself from rolling her eyes with extreme difficulty. Well, I suppose it could have been worse, she said. 
Are you going to see her again? I'll have to, won't I? Said Harry. We've got DA meetings, haven't we? You know what I mean, said Harry and said Hermione impatiently. Harry said nothing. Hermione's words opened up a whole new vista of frightening possibilities. She tried to imagine going somewhere with Cho, Hogsmeade, perhaps, and being alone with her for hours at a time. Of course, she would have been expecting him to ask her out after what had just happened. The thought made his stomach clench painfully. Oh, well, said Hermione distantly, buried in her letter once more. You'll have plenty of opportunities to ask her. What if he doesn't want to ask her, said Ron, who had been watching Harry with an unusually shrewd expression on his face. Don't be silly, said Hermione vaguely. Harry's liked, liked her for ages, haven't you, Harry? He did not answer. Yes, he had liked her for ages, but whenever he had imagined a scene involving the two of them, that had always featured a Cho who was enjoying herself as opposed to a Cho who was sobbing uncontrollably into his shoulder. Who are you trying who are you writing the novel to anyways? Ron asked Hermione, trying to read the bit of parchment now trailing on the floor. Hermione hitched up hitched it up out of sight. Victor Crumb How many other victors do you know? Ron said nothing but looked disgruntled. They sat in silence for another 20 minutes, Ron finishing his transfiguration essay with many snorts of impatience and crossing out. Hermione riding steadily to the very end of the parchment, rolling it up carefully and sealing it. Harry staring into the fire, wishing more than anything that Sirius's head would appear there and give him some advice about girls. But the fire merely cracked lower and lower until the red-hot embers crumbled into ash, and looking around, Harry saw that they were yet again the last in the common room. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. I get, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I think my first kiss, I didn't really think too much of it. I was so, I don't know. I was kind of young at the time. So I was kind of like, I think I was just like, nice. That just happened. I don't know. What about you, man? I, I wasn't as, like, distraught as he was. But at the same time, like, I guess this chick was, like, crying all over him. So yeah. kind of a weird place to be in, I guess. I, I don't know if my first kiss, if I would have been able to, to handle any better than Harry if the girl was in there crying all over me because of someone <laughs> that, like, she was dating before died and I was there when he died. Like, I don't even know if I could, like, kind of like that girl anymore, which is kind of where he's at in, in a little bit in his head. Like, he doesn't even really, he's conflicted about what his feelings for her are now. Like, you know, like, he really liked her yeah. all this year. And, like, now he's like, well, this is kind of awkward because this, there's a lot of, it's very complicated. Remember the old Facebook status? Like, if you could put in a relationship with somebody, it's like single, in a relationship, or it's complicated. <laughs> well, that's as complicated as it gets, man. <laughs> like, that's really yeah, as complicated that's... as it gets. Uh, one thing I thought was really, really cool on page. 458 that you had already read through it it's very easy to pass this over but this is one of the very first times where Ron makes almost his feelings for Hermione known in a way that you could overlook it if you're not paying attention so on page right. 458 uh, when she says uh, when he goes are you a bad kisser or no even Ron says uh, are you that bad at kissing don't know said Harry who hadn't considered this and immediately felt rather worried maybe I am of course you're not, said Hermione absently. So then Ron says, how do you know? Said Ron in a sharp voice. So basically Ron's like, how would Hermione know if Harry's a bad kisser or not? He immediately got upset because he thinks that maybe Hermione kissed him and he would, she would know if Harry was a bad kisser or not. So like when he said, how do you know in a sharp voice, 
that was the very first big big clue of what we were going to get from from those two there like how he actually felt obviously he's always been pissy about crumb but i thought that he was very very worried that hermione and harry had kissed so um <laughs> yeah my my kiss like I, mine was interesting because I was in kindergarten when my first kiss happened. I was playing. I, I remember oh, this wow, to this day. Man. Well, it wasn't like, me. Yeah. Like here, here, like it was very interesting. Like I'll, I'll talk about it. It's funny. Like I, I hope so, some of my friends from back home in, in New York. I remember this. It was uh, Smith School. It was elementary school. Uh, uh, Mrs. Lundeen's class in kindergarten, and like it got to that time in kindergarten where we were kind of just playing. I think we were. I think we were done learning for the day, so we we're just playing whatever games they had there. And me and my friends. I remember it was me, my friends Jared Mayhar and Caleb Wright, and we were playing what's called Memory. It's that card game where you flip a card over and you try to find the match to that card that's also flipped over, and if you get it right, you get the cards. So we're just, like, playing Memory, and then, like, I remember, like, like I was quote-unquote dating a girl. Like, like we were just, we called each other boyfriend and girlfriend, but we didn't really do anything. We, like, slept, like, near each other, like, on the cots when it was nap time, but it was nothing, like, crazy. Like, I just thought it was funny, like, like oh, yeah, yeah I got a girlfriend, like, just joking, like, around. I'm sitting here playing this memory game with all my friends around, and like I feel like a tap on my back right shoulder. I turn around, and she, her name is Marissa Mastronardi. She's now married, uh, uh, henceforth. She's now, uh, yeah, I think she <laughs> has a child as well. So she she's well, well far away there. But I remember her name was Mr. Marissa Mastronardi. She, I turned around, and she just Mwah! like like didn't give me a chance to like like <laughs> lean in nothing. Like she like attacked my face with a pet kiss, and like I was like shocked, and I. I turned around to all my friends and they're like, "Oh!" And I was like, "I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know what just happened. I didn't get a, I didn't get a choice in my first kiss." Is basically what I'm saying. Not that I was against it or anything. Like, it was very cool, but like, I didn't really get a choice in that. I turned around and all of a sudden, lips were on my lips, and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> like so, that was my first kiss. But uh, very interesting, man. Very interesting that's indeed. Awesome, man. That's funny. So, wow, if we're going that far back. Actually, I, I guess that was my I, first kiss. <laughs> No, that was really good. That was awesome. Uh, it, it's funny, like, thinking back, like, how you react to certain things when you're a kid. Like, I remember when I was, like, in elementary school, uh, the kid I that was best friends when I was, like, in, in first grade. Um, and same thing, he's married, has a kid now. Well, like, his sister, I still remember, like, we were all in the basement. I think we were playing Power Rangers with his, like, plastic swords and stuff. And she always had, like, this little crush on me and I still remember like when I was a kid like she did the same thing but then of course me like reacting I was like oh I'm trying to play this <laughs> like I felt <laughs> I did like until like then at the moment I was like oh I did the right thing like girls are gross like I told her in front of Corey like she shouldn't be trying to do that <laughs> and I like pulled out my Power Ranger sword and, like going back I was like I would have told myself dude like you're an ass like, why did you do that? I was like, ah, oh, you would want to, what are you doing? That's not how this game works. <laughs> yeah, man. So it, it's so funny, like, as you, like, grow up and look back at things, just like in this book, man. Like, now you're starting to see, like, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, like, grow up. Like, imagine if, like, I feel almost like, if what if Jenny had tried to kiss Harry, like, in Sorcerer's Stone? He'd be like, ugh, that's nasty. <laughs> you nasty. Oh, that's, that's crazy, man. So, good times, man. But I'll let you take it over from here, brother. 
Yeah, I'll start rolling on here. I'm trying not to read too much of the book because we don't want to be like story time with Chase and Josh yet because we're going to have yeah, a lot exactly, of those chapters right? at the end. <laughs> so so yeah. I'm trying to kind of keep some pretty decent bullets here for us. But yeah. um, it's funny, as soon as I say that, there actually is a passage in the book that I need to read talking about Harry's dream. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, the dream, like when he's talking about like the dream changed and his body felt smooth, powerful, and flexible. He was gliding between shining metal bars across dark, cold stone. He was flat against the floor, sliding along his belly. It was dark, yet he could see objects around him shimmering in strange, vibrant colors. He was turning his head. At first glance, the corridor was empty, but no. A man was sitting on the floor ahead, his chin dropping on his chest, outline gleaming in the dark. Harry put out his tongue. He tasted the man's scent in the air. He was alive but drowsy, sitting in the front door at the end of the corridor. Harry longed to bite the man, but he must master the impulse. He had more important work to do. But now the man was stirring. A silvery cloak fell from his legs as he jumped to his feet, and Harry saw his vibrant, blurred outline towering above him, saw a wand drop from his belt. He had no choice. He reared high from the floor and struck once, twice, three times, plunging his fangs deeply into the man's flesh, feeling his ribs splinter beneath his jaws, and feeling the warmth gush of blood. And the man was yelling in pain. Then he fell silent, slumped backwards against the wall, blood splattering onto the floor. His scar, his forehead hurt terribly, and it was aching to burst. And Harry, Harry, and he opened his eyes, and every inch of his body was covered in icy sweat. So, what was that? That was the. It wasn't. I don't even know if that's really a foreshadow or a premonition or like he saw. He did it in the moment from the perspective of the snake. But basically, yeah. Harry tells Ron, "I just saw your dad get attacked." He kind of like he said, told you know because he's actually the one he saw himself doing it as the snake. And that was kind of a big important part because when they go up to Dumbledore's office in a minute, there's something that's kind of cool that happens here. But so everyone kind of tries to tell him that, oh, it's just a dream. And Harry's like, no, no, this is not just a dream. Like, this is important. So they go to see Dumbledore. McGonagall shows up and, you know, they escort uh, him and Ron because it's Ron's dad. You know, Ron's dad's the one that Harry realized that he attacked as a snake. And like, if we try to put two and two together, what large snake do we know of that's close to like the dark side, right? Nagini, like you know, Lord Voldemort's pet snake. So it's, it's pretty. And then since they kind of have that shared connection, now it's like Harry kind of took into the possessed form into the snake. So it's very, very interesting how it all kind of works out. But uh, you know, he tried to get everyone to understand that it's not just a dream and that Mister Weasley is in grave danger. So I thought it was kind of cool that Professor McGonagall says, "I believe you, Potter," and like they start going right away. Like it's not none of this. Like oh, don't worry, it's not a big deal. Like. Harry, Harry made it known that it was super important, but uh, thought it was pretty cool that on page 466, the password of Dumbledore's office is Fizzing Wisby. That was nice. I always like to, I always like to jot down the passwords to the, the, the Dumbledore's office. <laughs> uh, but on page 468, and this has also got a foreshadow here, Dumbledore still won't look at Harry. That that's, yeah. mentions it specifically. Like, it's so annoying because he is, this is, so we're 467 pages into the book right now. And Dumbledore still has not said a single word to Harry Potter. Bro, 467 pages is more pages than the entire book of Prisoner of Azkaban. By like a yeah. decent margin, by like 100 pages. We've had like a whole, basically a whole book of regular size where he hasn't said a word to Harry. He showed up and defended him at the hearing, didn't say a word to him, didn't look at him. Hasn't said a word all school year, hasn't looked at him, he still refuses to look at him, even though Harry is right in front of his face. Like Harry's starting to get frustrated and it kind of comes to a boil yeah. here in a second. But Harry tells Dumbledore what happened and how he was the snake and saw it from the snake's perspective. And this is the first time all book that Dumbledore actually speaks to Harry 
even though he still won't look at him. And what I thought was cool too, guys, if you look on chapter 22, it's called St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. It's on page 466. You see that silver instrument that's described where the two snakes sprout out of it. And Dumbledore says that word like, you know, separate but intertwined, uh, something along those lines. So it's just one of those things, man, that it's, this is, like I said, more than a full book page. And someone who cares about Harry, Harry deeply hasn't said a word to him up until right now. Very, very interesting. Right. But we realize there's, there's a reason. I also thought it was kind of cool, too, that the portraits use... Like Dumbledore uses the portraits to relay messages, kind of going back and forth. And we kind of see, yeah. like, what portraits have different uh, things in different places. And so, for example, like, uh, I'm going to actually read on page 469 where it says, Everard and Dilly were, were two of, right? So, Everard and right. Dilly were two of Hogwarts' most celebrated heads, Dumbledore said, now sweeping past around Harry, Ron, and Professor McGonagall and approaching the magnificent sleeping bird on the perch beside the door. Their renown is such that they both have portraits hanging in other important wizarding institutions. As they are free to move between their own portraits, they can tell us what may be happening elsewhere. So that's a really awesome like benefit to have if you're a Hogwarts headmaster. We start to learn what, with like Phineas Nagellus here in a second. They all start yelling at him. Like, These portraits feel like they have a sense of duty to the school to help the current headmaster. And I find that that was really, really cool. But uh, anyways... Now we're going through to page 470, and this is actually about that silver instrument that I was talking about. I actually have that here. Uh, so the instrument tinkled into life. At once, the rhythmic clinking, uh, at once with rhythmic clinking noises, tiny puffs of pale green smoke issued from the minuscule silver tube at the top. Dumbledore watched the smoke closely, his brow furrowed, and after a few seconds, the tiny puffs became a steady stream of smoke that thickened and coiled in the air. A serpent's head grew out of the end of it, opening its wide mouth. Harry wondered whether the instrument was confirming his story. He looked eagerly at Dumbledore for a sign that he was right, but Dumbledore did not look up. Naturally, naturally, murmured Dumbledore, apparently to himself, still observing the stream of smoke without the slightest sign of surprise. But in essence, divided. Harry could make neither heads nor tails of this question. The smoke serpent, however, split itself instantly into two snakes, both coiling and undulating in the dark air. With a look of grim satisfaction, Dumbledore gave the instrument a gentle tap with his wand, the clinking noise slowed and died, and the smoke serpents grew faint and became a formless haze and uh, vanished. So, this is like, what I would say, probably a big foreshadow that people don't recognize. I mean, it says, like, like, it shows that they come out together, and then Dumbledore says, but in essence, divided. So, I don't want to draw right. the allusion to it, because it will give away stuff in the future, but... We'll come back to it probably around Deathly Hallows' time when Dumbledore's... Everything he's been working towards kind of starts coming into fruition. But this thing basically lets you know that people kind of are combined into one thing, but they split up and they're in essence divided even though there's a connection there. So I'll say that. I'll leave that there. <laughs> um, but then page 471, the portrait came back and told Dumbledore that Arthur has been taken to St. Mungo's. And page 473... Uh, Phoenix and the Jealous actually has a portrait in both the headmaster's office and number 12 Grimald Place. It's actually in where the room that Harry and Ron were staying in is where Phoenix yep. and the Jealous has the uh, uh, other the portrait head. But this comes up big later because when they go and try to find someone in number 12 Grimald Place later on to confirm something that Harry saw, I won't say anything yet, but the portrait comes up big one more time. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, brother. 
Yeah, man. Uh, just one thing I wanted to say about this. Like, remember when Harry went into Dumbledore's office? You almost felt like he was having like a midnight party or something. Like it, like described how there were other people in there, and he was like chatting up with them. Uh, it even says here just this one sentence of describing what he was wearing. It said, uh, Dumbledore, Dumbledore was sitting in a high-backed chair behind his desk. He leaned forward into the pool of candlelight, illuminating the papers laid out before him. He was wearing a magnificently embroidered purple and gold dressing gown over a snowy white nightshirt, but seemed wide awake, his penetrating light blue eyes fixed intently on Professor McGonagall. And, like, you're... I'm sure Harry was thinking, because this guy hasn't talked to him at all, really, even since literally last year, like, not even over the summer, he's, like, sitting here thinking, dude, like, you won't even say hey to me, but you're sitting here basically throwing part midnight parties in your office? Like, what Well, they're not really midnight parties. Right he's talking with his portraits around his head. Like, that was who he was talking to. I think they have more planning than anything, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. But, like, I mean, it's just a whole different vibe like remember when harry ran in there after what happened with um with crouch not crouch jr but you know uh crouch senior like he ran in there and and you know dumbledore was all for it like helping him right away this is like a totally different vibe like harry's freaking out because he just had one of the most vivid dreams that he's ever had in his life and dumbledore you know after he told him exactly what happened with the dark lord you know who rising again like basically wanted to know everything about it like he would assume like hey i need to tell you this like wouldn't you be like super interested and like dumbledore wouldn't even look at him so that's really what i picked up here but uh going from that point here uh so one thing i did want to talk about was they were talking about for a moment that um so like you know he tells uh, McGonagall that Fox will alert Molly, right? And uh, they were saying that he was referring to the Weasley's clock that was at the burrow there. So I thought that was like a really uh, cool part like because it, he mentions that the hand on the Weasley clock uh, was most likely pointing towards mortal peril. So that's like, you know, we had a quick glimpses of that clock throughout the books um they even brought it up in the film and like chamber of secrets for a little bit but yeah so i thought that was really cool like just not very important but it was a really cool thing that jk rowling added in there um and then it says you know um you know you kind of went over all the portraits and everything as well um but it says so uh dumbledore winds up telling uh, uh, Jenny and Arthur basically a little bit down the road here that uh, telling Jenny that Arthur was injured doing work for the Order of the Phoenix so you find out that that's why how he gets injured um, and then Dumbledore winds up telling uh, Harry and the Weasleys that he's uh, sending them of course when sh just jumping off where you said ending at 12 Grinwall Place He's sending them there to Sirius's house because it's easier easier to get to St. Mungo's. So if people are wondering why he didn't just send them straight to where Arthur was, um, it's really difficult to do that. But like they're already having to travel uh, via a port key to do this. So it's not like you can just he just send them over to St. Mungo's. But 
um, it says he actually mentions, you know, they can't travel by flu powder because as we were talking about before, the network is being watched. Like that's a big moment here. And I think it's really smart of Dumbledore that he's thinking about all this stuff because all Harry and the Weasleys are really thinking about it at this moment is we got to get to Arthur. We got to get to Arthur. Well, think about it. If they had just done what they wanted to do to get there as quick as possible, Umbridge and the Ministry would have been all over what was going on. Um, so that's a big point there. And then Fox wind up, winds up uh, warning. I thought this was cool. Fox leaves a warning of uh, with a single golden feather on the floor. So I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was pretty awesome. Um, and then, you know, you want to take over on 474. Here's yeah. the thing, guys, is like when we're getting into this detail, especially this book, it's so big. We try not to do like these dissects. So you're not, it's not story time with Chase and Josh, but especially like when we're diving into the nitty gritty detail, like there's things you have to hear because they play big parts later on. Um, so I'm at the part where Harry's scars start burning. Do you want yeah, to take over from there? For sure. And like to talk about that port key too for a second, just a quick thing is that it was actually a kettle. He turned a kettle into a port key. That was what the port yeah. key was made from. And like that warning that you were talking about with Fox, what it did is it warned them that Umbridge knows that they're out of their beds. And so what Dumbledore does is has McGonagall go head her off. Like, hey, give her a story, Minerva. Like, go, fig- go head her off real quick and so I can get these kids out of here. Right. So, uh, <laughs> but yes, on page 474, that's where I'm at too. You know, they, they go to take the port key to number 12 Grimmauld Place. And Dumbledore, finally, his eyes look at Harry. And Harry has like this innate urge to attack him. Right, so I'm actually going to go ahead and read that last paragraph through the first paragraph from 475. It says, And at once Harry's scar burned white hot, as though an old wound had burst open again, and unbidden, unwanted, but terrifyingly strong, there rose within Harry a hatred so powerful he felt that for an instant he would like nothing better to strike, to bite, to sink his fangs into the man before him. Talking about Dumbledore. And so that's actually a little bit of a foreshadow talking about uh, that little connection that we were saying. You know, like there's a reason why uh, Harry feels this way towards Dumbledore. It's not Harry's own feelings. I'll say that. So yeah. going on from there, uh, page. I'm just going to go ahead and go to page 478 and read the letter that uh, was was written there. It says this is from. Uh, let's see. He thrust the letter into George's hand, ripped it open, and read aloud, Dad is still alive. I am setting out for St. Mungo's now. Stay where you are. I will send news as soon as I can. Mom. So, good news. Arthur Weasley's still alive. And it's interesting, too, because, like, J.K. Rowling has a tendency to kill off characters. Like, especially, you know, from this book going forward. So, I, when I first was reading this, I was partially expecting him not to make it. So, uh, really yeah. cool the fact that uh, he, in fact did survive this attack. So, uh, going on to page 479, Mrs. Weasley arrives and tells him that Mrs. Mr. Weasley is going to be alright, even though, you know, they were kind of thinking with that letter that was sent, like he was hovering somewhere in between life and death, but she finally does arrive a page later and tells him that he's going to be okay. So, Mrs. Weasley tells Harry that Arthur, being where he was found, could have landed him in Azkaban, but Dumbledore was able to think up a good, good cover story. So I'll go actually ahead and read that first paragraph there on page 480. It says, They might not have found Arthur for hours, and then it would have been too late, but thanks to you he's alive, and Dumbledore has been able to think up a good cover story for Arthur being where he was. You have no idea what trouble he would have been in otherwise. Look at poor Sturgis. So that goes to show, like, 
he could have ended up in Azkaban for what he where he was. My question is, what kind of story could Dumbledore give for this guy being in a completely different department than his workstation, way past the time he was supposed to be out of the ministry? What what could have possibly been a good cover story? So, is that a potential plot hole? I don't know. It's definitely something I've got <laughs> questions on for sure. I just don't think you could come up with this amazing plot, especially if you're already working. It's one thing if Fudge was his friend, was Dumbledore's friend, and was like, oh, okay, no worries. But, like, Fudge is actively working against Dumbledore. So, like, anything, like, Dumbledore, what could he have possibly said to, like, not have him catch any sort of charges for trespassing or being in the wrong places at the wrong times? Like, I'm wildly, like, I, I, I am curious about that. So, anyways. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing you could even... I don't even know how you could conjure a fathomable story. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Not that at all. Make any sense. Mm-hmm. So on page 480 to 481 here, I'm just going to read like small paragraphs because this is Harry talking to Sirius about, you know, that dream. It says, but that's not all, said Harry in a voice only a little above a whisper. Sirius, I, I think I'm going mad. Back in Dumbledore's office, just before we took the port key, for a couple of seconds, I thought I was a snake. I felt like one. My scar really hurt when I looked at Dumbledore. Sirius, I, I wanted to attack him. He said, You can only see a sliver of Sirius's face. The rest was in darkness. It must have been the aftermath of the vision. That's all, said Sirius. You were still thinking of the dream, or whatever it was, and it wasn't that, said Harry, shaking his head. It was like something rose up inside me. Like there's a snake inside me. And that's a little bit of a... A little bit of foreshadowing too there. A little bit of a just little, a, just a little wink. bit, yeah, just a, a tiny bit. A little, little wink to the to the future there. Um, <laughs> going on to page four eighty three. This is just talking a little bit about uh, the how do you get to Saint Mungo's? There's a red brick department store called Purge and Douse Ltd. It's closed for refurbishment, and they tell the mannequin there that they're see, they're here to see Arthur Weasley. And the mannequin nods, and they step through the glass, and they're in St. Mungo's. So it's like another one of those things um, that you're very similar to what we'll find out how to enter the Ministry of Magic from the visitor's you know, door later on. Like They've got to hide it from the mogul world because, obviously, it's got to be big enough to you know, take care of the majority of the magical world in, in England, right? So you know, that'd be a cool, interesting fact, bro. If you haven't done this one, think about uh, Try to figure out what all the other hospitals throughout the country throughout the world are outside of just st mungo's if there's any more but uh like that actually is really good that's <laughs> it's not a good bad one, one right that's it's, awesome yeah that's yeah. a really good one that's great so that's how you get in there though so the, the, that mannequin at purge and douse ltd you tell them who you're there to see they let you into the lobby then you go up to the front desk and they'll tell you where to find the room so that's how you get in there and then uh i thought this was kind of cool uh <laughs> I, I wanted to just read the floor numbers from St. Mungo's. There's a couple things first, but like some of the weird ailments that they had to, they, they were talking about being there in the, the lobby. It said, uh, some were sporting gruesome disfigurements such as elephant trunks or extra hands sticking out of their chests. The room was scarcely less quiet than the street outside for many of the patients were making very peculiar noises. A sweaty faced witch in the center of the front row was fanning herself vigorously with a copy of the daily prophet kept letting out a high pitched whistle as steam came pouring out of her mouth. And a grubby-looking warlock in the corner clanged a bell every time he moved, and with each clang, his head vibrated horribly, so that he had to seize himself by the ears to hold it steady again. So, like, there's some weird, like, elements that these people are dealing with just in the lobby itself, in the waiting room, trying to get seen, right? Um, I thought it was kind of cool, too. Magical doctors, and you've mentioned this before, this isn't anything new, if you guys listen to Chase and his interesting facts, like, 
Uh, magical doctors are called healers. They're not called doctors. They're called healers. Uh, for page 45, a full circle moment is where we see Dillis's portrait in St. Mungo's. So that was pretty cool. This is actually Dillis Derwent's plate. I'm going to read that for you. Dillis Derwent, St. Mungo's healer from 1722 to 1741. Headmistress of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, 1741 through 1768. So Dillis is actually a female. My apologies. It's a her, not a he. So uh, that was pretty cool that we now know where the portrait is in St. Mungo's and in Dumbledore's office, how to get you know each one there. So there, that person, she was able to tell them when Arthur was brought in because she went straight to the lobby and saw when they brought him there. Um, now, going on to talk about the floors... Ground floor is artifact accidents, cauldron explosions, wand backpouring, broom crashes, etc. Creature-induced injuries is the first floor. Bites, stings, burns, embedded spines, etc. Magical bugs is the second floor. Contagious maladies like dragonpox, vanishing sickness, and scrofungulus. The third floor is potion and plant poisoning. Rasses, regurgitation, uncontrollable giggling, etc. Spell damage is the fourth floor. Unliftable jinxes, hexes, and incorrectly applied charms, etc. And the visitor's tea room and hospital shop is on the fifth floor. So those are the uh, those are the floors that are on the Saint Mungo's magic, like the hospital for magical maladies and injuries. Those are where you'll find for different elements where you'll go for each one and who you're there to see. Now this, the last thing I have right here before I turn it over to Chase is that. On page 46, we actually have someone mentioned again. Now, he's been mentioned in Sorcerer's Stone. He was mentioned at the beginning of this book in the uh, in where, where they were trying to get Harry to his hearing. And now he's mentioned here. Someone's here to see Bodrick Bode. Now, he's someone that is important in the Ministry of Magic for a specific section. Like, he works in a spot in the Ministry of Magic that's super important to the plot of this story that we haven't gotten to yet, so I'm trying to kind of dance my way around it. But Bodrick Bode is really, really important, and something happens to him later, too, that's, you know, tragic, but it makes sense, especially, you know, what we know that Voldemort is trying to do when it comes to the, uh, the Ministry of Magic and get his hands on something. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, brother. Yeah, man. No, that that's, that's awesome you brought that up. That was really definitely plays a role <laughs> later on um uh the second thing i uh the next thing i have is arthur weasley so he's on the first floor second door to the right so i thought it was cool just knowing exactly uh where he was at so um and then it kind of describes exactly like um kind of like what the way it kind of looks as they're going down this hallway um so on for instance 487 it just says the ward was small and rather dingy, as the only window was narrow and set high in the wall-facing door. Most of the light came from the more shining crystal bubbles clustered in the middle of the ceiling. The walls were paneled oak, and there was a portrait of a rather vicious-looking wizard on the wall, captioned Urquhart Rackharrow, 1612 to 1697, inventor of the Entral Expelling Curse. <laughs> and, uh... It says there were only three patients. Mr. Weasley was occupying the bed at the far end of the ward beside the tiny window. <laughs> like it, it's almost gives this like creepy vibe. Like it almost like he's not in this side 
Uh, the, he's not on this floor, but it almost one makes you wonder if you're like in a a mental ward or, or something for this section. Like it was like creepy walking down there, man. Um, and then Arthur uh, mentions on 488, he said that if he could take off his bandages, he wouldn't like go right home, but he can't take them off because he keeps bleeding from where the snake uh, bit him. And they said he was saying that he keeps given keeps been given blood replenishing potion every hour because he keeps bleeding out um which is just wild to think about um and then it says uh he mentions on 488 that the person next to him he said basically that he doesn't have it that bad because he says the fellow over there was bitten by a werewolf poor chap no cure at all like so it's just puts in perspective like the people in this hospital ward like (laughs) <laughs> like for Arthur to think he doesn't have it that bad like this hospital ward takes care of some like some bad shit <laughs> like I hate to say that could you imagine like walking in and it's like oh I'm getting put next to the guy that was bit by a werewolf I hope he doesn't get overtaken by the venom in the middle of the night because if I'm already bleeding out from a snake bite I'm definitely going to be bleeding out from when that werewolf tears out my entrails <laughs> so bad man uh, and then the next thing I have is um, Arthur told the guy bitten by the werewolf he said I know a guy and he finds the condition quite easy to manage so he's we know who he's referring to but it's it's funny because you do have the Weasleys I always feel like no matter how bad the situation is or how rough it is they always find a way to manage through it and they always look at the bright side uh, which is pretty awesome for, for the Weasleys. So I thought it was great about Arthur. Um, he said uh, said he'd give me another bite if I didn't shut up, is what he was telling them. <laughs> so can you imagine Imagine if you were bitten by a werewolf and, like, the venom's going through your brain, your head's going nuts, uh, you got the fever chills, and you got this guy next to you that's like, I mean, there's no cure, but you're going to be fine, man. It's really not that bad. Like, you're fine. It's not that bad, bro. Just like, dude, shut your effing mouth. <laughs> dude, it's great. Um, and then I have, uh, so Willie Windershins uh, was arrested and, and found they found him laying unconscious after an exploding toilet backfired is what they mentioned in one of these sections so for one of the uh, patients there and uh on page 490 um is it okay if i read that part or did you want to take that part just because i think that's a i just want to put in a couple pieces to catch up with you just i I want to plug in a couple pieces real quick just to get to where you're at um, the only yep. thing I was going to say, they, like, these aren't really important, but I thought they were just cool things to point out. Because you mentioned like Arthur Weasley being on the first floor and the second door on the right. That was actually mm-hmm. the, the Di Llewellyn ward. And the healers that are in charge of Arthur's case are Hippocrates Smethwick and the trainee healer is Augustus I. Or Phi. I can't even read my own writing. Wow, I pulled the chase there. I couldn't Augustus. even read my own writing for a second. Should be Augustus. Augustus Pi. 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 P-Y-E. Pi. There yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... I also thought it was pretty cool on page 487. Harry's kind of like a stand-up guy. When they say, hey, family first, he actually takes a step back. And then Mrs. Weasley's like, oh, no, no, you're family. Get the heck in there. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but the one thing I want to say about Willie Wittershins, it's not that he was like the, the patient there. The important thing about him is remember in the hearing, 
uh, Arthur Weasley had a bunch of stuff in his inbox about uh, the like, regurgitating toilets. Well, now this mm-hmm. full circle because that person, the culprit's finally caught, and uh, he was in it made his own mess there. So uh, that guy is no longer going to be any nuisance to Arthur Weasley's uh, misuse of Muggle artifacts office. So <laughs> that's all I want to do is kind of just put those, plug those in, and I'll let you, I'll let you take it from there. I feel like Arthur could basically just go here every day and play like uh, Encyclopedia Chase Brown that shit and just go up to everyone and be like, oh, so how did you get injured? (laughs) Oh, enchanting toilets, are we? Well, that goes against muggle artifacts. (laughs) Oh, it's so great, man. But uh, of course, we, you know, we try not to play uh stories told by jason josh but this one like this episode yeah, you, here you gotta read these two pages to close up the chapter for sure like this is like a super important one you have to so go go ahead yeah. and take it away that's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of detail um so george says you were guarding it weren't you said george quietly the weapon the thing you know who's after george be quiet snapped miss weasley anyway said Mr. Weasley in a raised voice. This time, Willie's been caught selling biting doorknobs to muggles. I don't think he'll be able to worm his way out of it because according to this article, two muggles have lost fingers and are now in St. Muggos for emergency bone. Regrowth and memory modification. Just think of it. Muggles and St. Mungos. I wonder which ward they're in. Indy looked eagerly around as though hoping to see a signpost. Didn't you say you know who's got a snake? Harry? asked Fred, looking at his father's for a a reaction. A massive one? You saw it in the night he returned, didn't you? That's enough, said Miss Weasley crossly. Mad-Eye and Tox are outside, Arthur. They want to come and see you, and you lot can wait outside, she added to her children and Harry. You can come and say goodbye afterwards. Go on. They trooped back into the corridor. Mad-Eye and Tonks went in and closed the door of the ward behind them. Fred raised his eyebrows. Fine, he said coolly, rummaging in his pockets. Be like that. Don't tell us anything. Looking for these, said George, holding out what looked like a tangle of flesh-colored string. You read my mind, said Fred, grinning. Let's see if St. Mungo's puts impenetrable charms on its ward doors, shall we? He and George disentangled the string and separated five extendable ears from each other. Fred and George handed them around. Harry hesitated to take one. Go on, Harry. Take it. You saved Dad's life. If anyone's got the right to eavesdrop on him, it's you. Grinning in spite of himself, Harry took the end of the string and inserted it into his ear, in the tw- as the twins had done. Okay, go, Fred whispered. The flesh-colored strings wiggled like long, skinny worms, then snake under the door. Snaked under the door. For a few seconds, Harry could hear nothing. Then he and he heard Tonks whispering as clearly as though she were standing right in, right beside them. They searched the whole area, but they couldn't find the snake anywhere. It just seems to have vanished after it attacked you, Arthur. But you know who can't have expected a snake to get in, can he? I reckon he sent it as a lookout, growled Moody, because he's not had any luck so far, has he? No, I reckon he's trying to get a clearer picture of what he's facing, and if Arthur hadn't been there, the beast wouldn't... The beast would have had much more time to look around. So Potter says he saw it all happen? Yes, said Miss Weasley. She sounded rather uneasy. You know, Dumbledore seems 
almost to have been waiting for Harry to see to see something like this. Yeah, well, said Moody, there's something funny about the potted kid. We all know that. Dumbledore seemed worried about Harry when I spoke to him this morning, whispered Miss Weasley. Of course he's worried, growled Moody. The boy's seeing things from inside you-know-who's snake. Obviously, Potter doesn't realize what that means, but if you-know-who's possessing him... Harry pulled the extendable ear out of his own, his heart hammering very fast, heat rushing up his face. He looked around at the others. They were all staring at him. The strings were trailing from their ears, looking suddenly fearful. Like, now we know yeah. what's going on. Now we got some good stuff. Um, yeah. There's two things I wanted to point, because I, I missed them. Not that I missed them, but this it was a good tie-in to, let me recircle back to it, when you said... Dumbledore hasn't, or not sorry, Lord Voldemort hasn't had much luck, so that's why he sent the snake. When we were talking about Broderick Bode, this is the actual passage that was like spoken about him. Uh, I'm here to see Broderick Bode. Ward 49, but I'm afraid you're wasting your time. He's completely addled, you know. Still thinks he's a teapot. So what kind of curses do we know that make people not really know what they're doing or who they are? Right? So the point, I, I, I bring that to you guys simply for the fact that there's been obviously other attempts. As Madame was saying, Voldemort hasn't had much success. Well, now you know, the, that that little Broderick Bode thing is a definitely something worth noting. And then the other one is that on page 49. Like Mr. Weasley, he almost slips out the secret himself. Like remember, he says, uh, mm-hmm. is, "Is it in the Prophet you being attacked?" This is on page 489. Going back a couple. Asked Fred, indicating the newspaper Mr. Weasley had cast aside. No, of course not, said Mr. Weasley with a slightly bitter smile. The ministry wouldn't want everyone to know a dirty great serpent got... Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley warningly. Uh, got me, he said hastily. So he almost told him. He almost told him right then and there. But, yes. Now going into the next chapter, chapter 23, Christmas on the Closed Ward. This is, this is another one, you know, that needs to be taken a few pages at a time too because this is where a lot now that we know that Harry might be possessed like this is a genuine concern like this is something that is necessary to the plot line and so I'll go ahead and read from the start of this chapter so I'll read about four pages to halfway go through page 434 what is it 496 492 to 496 here we go mm-hmm. was this why Dumbledore would no longer meet Harry's eyes do you expect to see Voldemort staring out of them afraid perhaps that the vivid green might turn suddenly turn to scarlet with cat light slits for pupils. So again, little red eyes illusion there that they decide to leave out of all the movies, except Sorcerer's Stone. Alright, <laughs> Harry remembered how the snake-like face of Voldemort had once forced itself out of the back of Professor Quirrell's head, and he ran his hand over the back of his own head, wondering what it would feel like if Voldemort burst out of his skull. He felt dirty contaminated as though he was carrying some sort of deadly germ unworthy to sit on the underground train back from the hospital with innocent clean people whose minds and bodies were free from the taint of Voldemort he had not merely seen the snake he had been the snake and he knew it now and then a truly terrible thought occurred to him a memory bobbing to the surface of his mind one that his insides made his insides writhe and squirm like serpents what's he after apart from his followers Stuff he can only get by stealth, like a weapon. Something he didn't have last time. I'm the weapon, Harry thought. And it was as though poison were pumping through his veins, chilling him, bringing him out in a sweat as he swayed with the train through the dark tunnel. I'm the one Voldemort's trying to use. That's why they've got guards around me everywhere. 
I everywhere I go. It's not for my protection. It's for other people's. Only it's not working. They can't have someone on me at all times at Hogwarts. I did attack Mr. Weasley last night. It was me. Voldemort made me do it, and he could be inside me, listening to my inner thoughts right now. Are you all right, Harry dear? Whispered Mrs. Weasley, leaning across Ginny to speak to him as the train rattled along through its dark tunnel. You don't look very well. Are you sick? They were all watching him. He shook his head violently and stared up at an advertisement for home insurance. Harry dear, are you sure you're all right? Said Mrs. Weasley in a worried voice as they walked around the uncut patch of grass in the middle of Grimald Place. You look ever so pale. Are you sure you slept this morning? You go upstairs to bed right now and you have a couple hours of sleep before dinner, all right? And he nodded. Here was a ready-made excuse not to talk to any of the others, which was precisely what he wanted. So when he opened the front door, he proceeded straight past the troll leg umbrella stand and up the stairs and hurried into his and Ron's bedroom. Here he began to pace up and down, past the two beds, and Phineas Nagellus's empty portrait. There we go. Let me point that out right there. <laughs> his brain teeming and seething with questions and ever more dreadful ideas. How had he become a snake? Perhaps he was an animagus. No, he couldn't be. He would know. Perhaps Voldemort was an animagus. Yes, thought Harry. That would fit. He would turn into a snake, of course, and when he's possessing me, then we both transform. That still doesn't explain how I got to London and back in my bed in the space of about five minutes, though. But then, Voldemort's about the most powerful wizard in the world, apart from Dumbledore. It's probably no problem at all to transport people like that. And then a terrible stab of panic thought. But this is insane. If Voldemort's possessing me, I'm giving him a clear view into the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix right now. He'll know who's in the Order of the Phoenix and where Sirius is. And I've heard loads of stuff I shouldn't have. Everything Sirius told me the first night I was here. There was only one thing for it. He would have to leave Grimald Place straight away. He would spend Christmas at Hogwarts without the others, which would keep them safe over the holidays at least. But no, that wouldn't do. There is still plenty of people at Hogwarts to maim and injure. What if Seamus, Dean, or Neville next time? He p stopped pacing and stood staring at Phineas Nagellus's empty frame. A leaden sensation was settling in the pit of his stomach. He had no alternative. He was going to have to return to Privet Jive and cut himself off from the other wizards entirely. Well, if he had to do it, he thought, there's no point hanging around. Trying with all his might not to think how the Dursleys were going to react when they found him on their doorstep six months earlier than they expected, strode over to his trunk, slammed the lid shut, locked it, and glanced around automatically for Hedwig before remembering she was still at Hogwarts. Well, her cage would be one less thing to carry. He seized one out of his trunk and he dragged it halfway towards the door when a sneaky voice said, Running away, are we? He looked around. Phineas Nigellus had appeared upon the canvas of the portrait and was leaning against the frame, watching Harry with an amused expression on his face. Not running away, no, said Harry shortly, dragging his trunk a few more feet across the room. I thought, said Phineas Nigellus, stroking his pointed beard, that to belong in Gryffindor House, you were supposed to be brave. Well, it looks to me as though you've been better off in my own house. We Slytherins are brave, yes, but not stupid. For instance, given the choice, we will always choose to save our own necks. It's not my own neck I'm saving, said Harry tersely, tugging the trunk of a patchy, un particular uneven moth-eaten carpet right in front of the door. Oh, I see, said Phineas Nagella, stroking his beard. This is no cowardly flight. You're being noble. Harry ignored him. His hand was on the doorknob when Phineas Nagella said lazily, I have a message from you from Albus Dumbledore. Harry spun around. What is it? Stay where you are. I haven't moved, said Harry, his hand still on the doorknob. So what's the message? I've just given it to you, dolt, said Phineas Nagella smoothly. Dumbledore says, stay where you are. Why, said Harry eagerly, dropping the end of trunk. Why does he want me to stay? What else did he say? Nothing whatsoever, said Phineas Nagellus, raising a thin black eyebrow, as though he found Harry. 
impatient. So Harry's temper rose to the surface like a snake rearing from a long grass. He was exhausted. He was confused beyond measure. He had experienced terror relief and then terror again in the last 12 hours. And still, Dumbledore did not want to talk to him. So that's it, is it? He said loudly. Stay there? That's all anyone could tell me after I got attacked by Dementors too. Just stay put while the grown-ups sounded out, Harry. We won't bother telling you anything, though, because your tiny little brain might not be able to cope with it. You know, said Phineas Nagellius even more loudly than Harry, this is precisely why I loathed being a teacher. Young people are so infernally convinced that they are absolutely right about everything. Has it not occurred to you, my poor puffed-up popinjay, that there might be an excellent reason why the headmaster of Hogwarts is not confiding every tiny detail of his plans to you? Have you never paused, while feeling hard done by, to note that following Dumbledore's orders has never yet led you into harm? No, no, like all young people, you are quite sure that you feel alone and think you alone recognize danger, that you alone are only one clever enough to realize what the Dark Lord may be planning. He is planning something to do me then, said Harry swiftly. Did I say that? said Phineas Nagellus, idly examining his silk gloves. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have better things to do than listen to an adolescent agonizing good day to you. And that's where I'll leave that part there. But there's some really serious stuff to impact here, like like dissect and stuff. So he now fully believes he's been being uh, possessed by Lord Voldemort. He thinks that he's the weapon that they're using. You know, he's a secret weapon. He can show them where the Order of the Phoenix headquarters is. Like he's got him to attack one of their own. Now he's nervous. He's like, he's like, I gotta run away, man. And Dumbledore still the same old thing, like still not talking to him, just giving him orders from the sidelines, like, up, oh, stay where you are, stay where you are. So, <laughs> stay big moments there, though, because this is this is going to be kind of like the teetering point of like what Harry decides to do moving forward, uh, because here shortly he's going to find out the truth if he's being possessed or not. And with that, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Uh... Uh, so the going off of that, I mean, we're about to find out in just a minute here. Like Harry's kind of, it's like that almost like triggers like the back, take a step back and go back into the depression stage. Harry, like he's like, hey, remember how he was in the beginning of this book, and now he's gonna start taking it out on everyone else again. Um, and the first thing I have is Hermione shows up. Uh, shows up and surprises everyone really you know she's skipping Christmas with her family like they were supposed to go skiing remember and uh, she shows up to see them and she says she came on the night bus uh, which we didn't mention that a lot earlier but you know the night bus uh, Tonks and Alistair like that's how they escorted everyone to St. Mungo's which was pretty cool which we haven't seen that since Prisoner of Azkaban so I thought it was cool how it was all tied in here but what I have here, really, and then I'll turn it back over to you, is Jenny really puts Harry in his place for something that's from one of my favorite books uh, going way back, uh, which I do want to mention just as one paragraph here. So, because Harry starts being an ass again. I hate to say it, but he's really been an ass, uh, especially to two really sweet ladies being nice to him. And Hermione goes, I came on the night bus, said Hermione airily, pulling off her jacket before Harry had time to speak. Dumbledore told me what had happened first thing this morning, but I had to wait for the term to end officially before setting off. Umbridge is already livid from what you lot disappeared right under her nose, even though Dumbledore told her Mr. Weasley was in St. Mungo's and he'd given you all permission to visit, so... She sat down next to Ginny and the two girls and Ron looked up at Harry. How are you feeling? asked Hermione. Fine, said Harry stiffly. Oh, don't lie, Harry. Uh, she said impatiently. Ron and Jenny say you've been hiding from everyone since you got back from St. Mungo's. They do, do they? 
said Harry, glaring at Ron and Ginny. Ron looked down at his feet, but Ginny seemed quite unabashed. Well, you have, she said, and you won't look at any of us. It's you lie who won't look at me, said Harry angrily. Maybe you're taking it in turns to look and keep missing each other, suggested Hermione, the corners of her mouth twitching. <coughs> Very funny, snapped Harry, turning away. Oh, stop feeling misunderstood, said Hermione sharply. Look at the others have told me what you overheard last night on extendable ears. Yeah, growled Harry, growled Harry, growled Harry his hands deep in his pockets as he watched the snow now falling thickly outside. All been talking about me, have you? Well, I'm getting used to it. We wanted to talk to you, Harry, said Jenny. But as you've been hiding ever since we got back, I didn't want anyone to talk to me, said Harry, who was feeling more and more nettled. Well, that's a bit stupid of you, said Jenny angrily, seeing as you don't know anyone but me who's been possessed by you-know-who, and I can tell you how it feels. So she, like, really puts him in his place there. Uh, and it says, Harry remained quiet, still as the impact of these words hit him. Then he wheeled around. So you can see here, uh, and we won't go full into detail on everything else because we try to keep it efficient, but it's like he's falling back into that place where he was, almost like that triggered in his mind when he found out that from the extendable years. Like, almost like he feels like he has no control again. And I thought it was great by what Jenny did because Harry's always thinking, like, he's the one that all this bad stuff is happening to and she reminds him no like that happened to me so like you have no excuse to be an ass <laughs> to everyone else uh so i thought it was really good and uh shooting it back over to you man yeah no that was awesome that's a really that's one of my favorite moments that kind of slap harry in the face moment like it's like oh crap like while i'm up here feeling sorry for myself and like wondering if i've got to run away like, there's literally been someone this whole time that actually has been possessed by Lord Voldemort and, like, could probably help me out or at least give me an idea. And so to talk a little bit about that possession, because this is, you know, not only does she say that I have been, she kind of goes yep. in and helps him try to figure out what if it's true or not. So she tells her, like, I forgot. She, Lucky you, said Ginny coolly. I'm sorry. Said Harry, and he meant it. So do you think I'm being possessed then? Well, can you remember everything that you've been doing? Ginny asks. Are there big blank periods where you don't know what you've been up to? Harry racked his brains. No. Then you know who hasn't ever possessed you, said Jenny simply. When he did it to me, I couldn't remember what I'd been doing for hours at a time. I'd find myself somewhere and not know how I got there. Harry hardly dared believe her. Yeah, his heart was lightning, almost in spite of himself. That dream I had about your dad and the snake, though. Harry, you've had those dreams before, Hermione said. You had flashes of what Voldemort was up to last year. This was different, shaking his head. I was inside that snake. It was like I was that snake. What if Voldemort somehow transported me to London. One day, said Hermione, sounding thoroughly exasperated, you'll read Hogwarts a history, and perhaps that will remind you that you cannot apparate or disapparate inside Hogwarts. Even Voldemort couldn't just make you fly out of your dormitory, Harry. You didn't leave your bed, mate, said Ron. I saw you thrashing around in your sleep about a minute before we could wake you up. And Harry started pacing up and down the room again, thinking, well, they were all saying not only it was comforting, but it also made sense. And without thinking, he took a sandwich from the plate on the bed and crammed it into his hungry mouth. I'm not the weapon after all, thought Harry. His heart swelled with happiness and relief, and he felt like joining in as they heard Sirius tramping past his door towards Buckbeak's room, singing God Rest You Merry Hippogriffs at the top of his voice. So yay, Harry's not the weapon. He's not being possessed. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> good, good stuff. We love it, right? Um, Great stuff. This is yeah. really, really sad. This, this next part is really sad for me because, like, 
when I think about the implications of what this what this moment is. Mm-hmm. So this is the first Christmas Harry has with someone that I wouldn't say, I guess you could kind of say Mr. and Mrs. Weasley are a parent figure to Harry, but they've got their own kids, right? Right. So Sirius is the closest thing that doesn't have any other kids. Like Harry is his sole responsibility. That's all Sirius cares about is like Harry's well-being, right? Mm-hmm. So he finally has a Christmas with someone who cares about him and only him. It's in, you know, this is his first Christmas and I'm not going to say anything else on top of it, but it's this is a, this is a <laughs> somber moment i'll say in my mind because i know what happens at the end right so anyways how could he have dreamed of returning to privet drive for christmas sirius's delight at having the house full again and especially at having harry back was infectious he was no longer their sullen host of the summer now he seemed determined that everyone should enjoy themselves as much if not more than they would have done at hogwarts and he worked tirelessly in the run-up to christmas day cleaning and decorating with their help so that by the time they all went to bed on christmas eve the house was barely recognizable the tarnished chandeliers were no longer hung with cobwebs, but garlands of holly and gold and silver streamers, magical snow glittered in heaps over the threadbare carpets. A great Christmas tree obtained by Mundungus and decorated with live fairies blocked Sirius's family's tree of the view, and even the stuffed elf heads on the wall wore Father Christmas hats and beards. So, it's a very nice, joyous occasion. It's very wholesome, but it's also sad when you look back on it in retrospect once you finish the series. So, yeah. with that, brother, I'll turn it back over to you, man. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, that song Taylor Swift did a cover on. Last Christmas I gave you my heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, well, it's that, was, that was more about love, though. That was more about, like, romantic love, though. That had nothing to really do with this one. Well, she did, uh, she did remake that love story song. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, anyways, don't worry. I haven't listened to it yet. still got a ride with, uh, don't worry, it's not over yet. We got a while. <laughs> we got a good bit here, so enjoy enjoy the moment. Long live. Yep, live in the moment, people. <laughs> yeah, we got a moment, man, so we'll, we'll be okay. Hang in there, brother. Hang in there. Uh, but uh, I did write this down because, you know, I always like to talk about what everyone receives for Christmas. Not very important. I just think it's cool. Uh, but Ron thanks Harry uh, for the uh, broom compass. So, like, he gives him, like, a compass so he can actually tell which way he's going. <laughs> if he's, like, flying during Quidditch practice or when he's flying around, the good Lord knows he could use it. <laughs> That's for sure. Make sure he stands in the middle, <laughs> flies in the middle of those hoops. Uh, Hermione got Ron uh, the homework planner. That's on page 501. Hermione uh, gave Harry the book uh, that looked like a diary. And uh, she said, uh, do it today or you'll pay. And that's on page 501 at the bottom. Um, And so, let's see. It was... So Harry sorted through his presents and found one with Hermione's handwriting on it. She had given him to a book that resembled a diary except that it said things like do it today or later you'll you'll pay every time he opened the page so more like encouraging him to stop doing things last minute which we know he's had a problem with i have a problem with myself so i could really use this diary (laughs) and then uh (laughs) serious and lupin uh you know i'm a lupin guy serious is your boy um they give harry books entitled uh practical defense magic and it's used against the dark arts, so that was cool. More showing, you know, how Sirius is always supporting uh, Harry, who's really like his son. And then Hagrid gave Harry 
a furry brown wallet that had fangs. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. It's almost made me think of like if he goes to pull out a, a galleon or a dollar, right? Like it would bite him, so it encourage you to save. <laughs> it's like good deal, good thinking, Hagrid. Um, and it says <laughs> the fangs on. Yeah, great, right? And it says uh, the fangs on the book though were actually an anti theft device, which was really cool. So like, make sure no one's stealing anything out of your wallet, man. Could you imagine that? Like the thief comes in there. Oh, I'm no hand. No hands, girl. The way you move it got me in a trance. So yeah, it was going straight to the club. Um, but unfortunately, it did prevent Harry from putting money into the wallet without getting his fingers ripped off. So, it, in fact, actually, Harry really just couldn't spend any money <laughs> using that wallet. So, good stuff, man. That's on page five hundred two. Uh, Tonks. Um, got harry a model firebolt so that was pretty cool uh mr and miss weasley i got him the hand knitted jumper so like you know miss weasley's awesome like always going above and beyond and those gifts really matter i think the ones where you really spend time on it versus you just spend a lot of money on it especially like the gift card thing i'm guilty of like uh, i got the gift card run straight over to the walgreens real fast <laughs> grab that gift card throw it in the bag <laughs> put it i don't mean to brag i'd be like put it in the bag <laughs> yeah and then uh ron uh, gives harry the birdie bots every flavored beans so you know those are classic go get you some at universal props to universal there my one of my favorites uh dobby uh gave him a truly dreadful painting which i told you was kind of like the one i opened up in the box from uh, my mom and then underneath it was the british books of harry potter but it was a truly dreadful painting that he said he did himself so going back to the hard work like good for dobby man he worked hard on that thing uh and then percy sent back his christmas jumper like an ass on page 502 so just throwing it out there like that's messed up, man. That, that's bad. Um, uh, it does say, though, Dobby's painting looked like a goblin with two black eyes, according to Fred and George <laughs> on page 502. I felt so bad for Dobby, but that's a typical Fred and George comment, uh, man. And then Harry gave Hermione the new theory of numerology uh, for Christmas on page 503. Uh, and then in Creature's Room... Uh, had this uh, big boiler um, where he basically had made himself a nest when they go visit Creature's room. On 504, like, just to describe his room, it almost reminded me of, like, how Harry, like, spent, like, all that time over the years in the cupboard underneath, like, the Dursleys. I felt so bad for this guy. Um, but let's see here. It says... Uh, so right at the end of 503 actually it says Harry peered inside most of the cupboard was taken up with a very large and old fashioned boiler but in the foot space underneath the pipes creature had made himself something that looked like a nest a jumble of assorted rags and smelly old blankets were piled on the floor and the small dent in the middle of it showed where creature curled up to sleep every night here and there among the material were stale bread crust and moldy old bits of cheese in a far corner glinted small objects and coins that Harry guessed Creature had saved, magpie-like, from Sirius's purge of the houses, and he had also managed to retrieve the silver-framed family photographs that Sirius had thrown away over the summer. Their glass might be shattered, 
but still the little black and white people inside them peered hauntingly up at him, including he felt a little jolt in his stomach. The dark, heavy-lidded woman whose trial he had witnessed in Dumbledore's Pensieve, Bellatrix Lestrange. By the looks of it, hers was Creature's favorite photograph. He had placed it to the fore of all the others and had mended the glass clumsily with spello tape. So that's a big moment there. That's why I wanted to read that. And uh, I hate this girl. I can't stand her. She plays a, a major role later on. I got to give it to Helena Bonham Carter, though. Uh, I think she played her down to the T of the way she's described later on in the books. But with that, I'm going to let you take it over from here, my man. Sounds good, brother. Yeah, just to kind of touch on that, because you, you read all of the creature's hoard of stuff that he kept there, including the photo of Belichick's, but her photos of foreshadow. But also, if you guys think about this, and it's easy to miss if you're just reading it, on page 504, this is one of the biggest, biggest foreshadows. I'm going to read you the third paragraph. So, come to think of it, said Sirius, emerging from the pantry carrying a large turkey as they close the cupboard door. Has anyone actually seen Creature lately? I haven't seen him since the night we came back here, said Harry, and you were ordering him out of the kitchen. Yeah, said Sirius, frowning. You know, I think that's the last time I saw him, too. He must be hiding upstairs somewhere. He couldn't have left, could he, said Harry. I mean, when you said out, maybe he thought you meant get out of the house. No, no, house elves can't leave unless they're given clothes. They're tied to their family's house. They can leave the house if they really want to, Harry contradicted him. Dobby did. He let the Malfoys give me warnings two years ago. He had to punish himself afterwards, but he still managed it. Sirius looked slightly disconcerted for a minute and said, I'll look for him later. I'll expect to find him upstairs crying his eyes out over my mother's old bloomers or something. Of course, he might have crawled into the air cupboard and died, but I mustn't get my hopes up. So, big foreshadow because he... Let's say the house elves followed their master's orders. And when he was told out, that can be taken in a few different ways. And we're going to find out later in this book how that was actually taken and how that actually comes to affect the events that transpire later on. And so from there, uh, in his uh, page 507, Mrs. Weasley. She loses her mind as Mr. Weasley tells her that he attempted to get stitches. That made me laugh. Like, Mr. Weasley's obsessed awesome. with, like, muggle remedies, muggle anything. Mr. Weasley's obsessed with it. Like, how do these people get on without magic? These, these little rascals, I want to know how they do it. And so, like, I thought it was really, really funny when, uh... <laughs> so, I'm going to actually read the, the little dialogue between them. Oh, I'm not messing about, Molly, dear, said Mr. Weasley employingly. I was just... Something Pi and I thought we'd try, only, most unfortunately, with these particular kinds of wounds, it doesn't seem to have worked as well as we hoped. Meaning, well, I don't know whether you know what or not stitches are. It sounds as though you've been trying to sew your skin back together, said Mrs. Weasley with a sort of mirthless laughter, but even you, Arthur, wouldn't be that stupid. I'd fancy a cup of tea, too, said Harry, jumping to his feet, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione almost sprinted to the door as it swung close behind them. They heard Mrs. Weasley scream, What do you mean that's the general idea? So he wanted to try these stitches out, and she was not a fan. 
of <laughs> the stitches. <laughs> um, page 509. They run into Professor Lockhart. Uh, he has incurable memory loss, and that is because of Ron and his broken wand that he tried to use, but it <laughs> can't feel too bad for him because he tried to curse Harry and Ron. He was an adult yeah. wizard trying to curse two 12-year-olds at the time because that was year two, so they were both 12. So uh, can't feel too bad, but he kind of has like a little bit of a his own personality still, thinking he needs to sign people's uh, autographs and even tells the... The healer, oh, they won't take no for an answer. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, we weren't even <laughs> trying to be here. But uh, it was also pretty cool. Is like page 511. This is kind of a foreshadow. Professor Lockhart and Broderick Bode are in the same ward. They see Broderick Bode. And he, right. uh, I'm going to read on page 512 in the third paragraph of what Broderick Bode was, bought, uh, was brought for Christmas. So, and look, Broderick, you've been sent to potted plants and a lovely calendar with a different fancy hippogriff for each month. They'll brighten things up, won't they? Said the healer bustling along the, the mumbling man, setting a rather ugly plant with long, swaying tentacles on the bedside cabinet and fixing the calendar to the wall with her wand. So that plant is very, very important because of what it is, and we'll find that out. You guys will find that out next episode. I already know because I read ahead and did my notes, but you guys <laughs> will find out next episode of what that plant actually is and what it does. Um, now, but in that same thing, though, we do find out uh, they bump into Neville because he says, Mrs. Longbottom, are you leaving already? That's when they all realize uh, that who was at the very end of that ward. So it was Gilroy Lockhart, yeah. Broderick Bode, and Alice and Frank Longbottom. So uh, th- this is going to be Neville and Neville's grandmother who are visiting them. And what I'll do is I'll actually let you go ahead and, and take it from there, man. Yeah, this is a, a lot of stuff. Um, this is where, like we were saying, we don't want to do story time with Jason Josh, but <laughs> this episode, there's a lot of that. But it's because it's so important and a lot of full circle moments. Uh, so even starting here, really on page, I guess you can start technically, right? on 512 uh, I said place to start Where I said 513 through the end of chapter that's what I said yeah. that's good that's good yeah I just know there's a lot so oh yeah trying oh, this to be is... efficient but man it's Order it's... of the Phoenix <laughs> it throws it at you brother um, so starting on 513 so friends of yours Neville dear said Neville's grandmother graciously bearing down upon them all Neville looked as though he would rather be anywhere in the world but here. A dull purple flush was creeping up his plump face, and he was not making eye contact with any of them. Ah, yes, said his grandmother, looking closely at Harry and sticking out a shriveled claw-like hand for him to shake. Yes, yes, I know who you are, of course. Neville speaks most highly of you. Er, thanks, uh, said Harry, shaking hands. Neville did not look at him but surveyed his own feet the color deepening in his face all the while and you two are clearly weasleys miss longbottom continued uh, proffering her hand reg- regularly to ron and jenny in turn yes i know your parents not well of course but fine people fine people and you must be hermione granger hermione looked rather startled that miss longbottom knew her name but shook hands all the same yes Neville's told me all about you. Help him out a few sticky spots, haven't you? 
He's a good boy, she said, casting a sternly appraisingly look down her rather bony nose at Neville. But he hasn't got his father's talent, I'm afraid to say. And she jerked her, jerked her head in the direction of two beds at the end of the ward, so that the stuffed vulture on her hat trembled alarmingly. What? said Ron. Looking amazed, Harry wanted to stamp on Ron's foot, but the sort of thing was much harder to bring off unnoticed when you were wearing jeans rather than robes. Is that your dad down, down the inn, Neville? What's this? said Miss Longbottom sharply. Haven't you told your friends about your parents, Neville? Neville took a deep breath, looked up at the ceiling, and shook his head. Harry could not remember ever feeling sor sorrower, sorrier for anyone, but he could not think of any way of helping Neville out of the situation. Well, it's nothing to be ashamed of, said Miss Longbottom angrily. You should be proud. Neville, proud. They didn't give their health and their sanity to their only son would be ashamed of them, you know. I'm not ashamed said Neville very faintly, still looking anywhere, but at Harry and the others. Ron was now standing on tiptoe to look over at the inhabitants of the two beds. Well, you've got a funny way of showing it, said Miss Longbottom. My son and his wife, she said, turning haughtingly to Harry. Ron, Hermione, and Jenny were tortured into insanity by you-know-who's followers. Hermione and Jenny both clapped their hands over their, mouth, over their mouths. Ron stopped craning his neck to catch a glimpse of Neville's parents and looked mortified. They were Aurora's, you know. Very well respected within the wizarding community, Miss Longbottom went on. Highly gifted, the pair of them. I, yes, Alice dear, what is it? Neville's mother had come edging down the ward in, the, in her nightdress. She no longer had the plump, happy-looking face Harry had seen in Moody's old photograph of the original Order of the Phoenix. Her face was thin and worn now. Her eyes seemed overlarge, and her hair, which had turned white, was wispy and dead-looking. She did not seem to want to speak, or perhaps she was not able to, but she made timid motions towards Neville, holding something in her outstretched hand. Again? said Miss Longbottom, sounding slightly weary. Very well, Alice dear, very well. Neville, take it, whatever it is. But Neville had already stretched out his hand, into which his mother dropped an empty Drubal's blowing gum wrapper. Very nice, dear, said Neville's grandmother in a falsely cheery voice, putting his mother on his shoulder. But Neville said quietly, Thanks, Bum. His mother tottered away back up the ward, humming to herself. Neville looked around at the others, his expression defiant, as though daring them to laugh. But Harry did not think he'd ever found anything less funny in his life. Well, we better get back, sighed Miss Longbottom, drawing on long green gloves. Very nice to have met you all, Neville. Put that wrapper in the bin. She must have given you enough of them uh, to paper your bedroom by now. But as they left, Harry was sure he saw Neville slip the wrapper into his pocket. The door closed behind them. I never knew, said Hermione, who looked tearful. Nor did I, said Ron rather hoarsely. Nor me, whispered Jenny. They all looked at Harry. I did, he said glumly. Dumbledore told me, but I promised I wouldn't mention it. That's what Bellatrix Lestrange got sent to Azkaban for, using the Cruciatus curse on Neville's parents until they lost their mind. Bellatrix Lestrange did that, whispered Hermione, horrified. That woman creature's got a photo of in his den? 
There was a long silence broken by Lockhart's angry voice. Look, I didn't learn joined up riding for nothing, you know. Yeah, full circle moment there, man. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back over to you, which leads us into our last chapter today. But yeah. finally, everything's starting to come like pieces of the puzzle are slowly coming together. It's, it's uh, all you, my man. It's really sad in a way, like when you think about Neville, it's like he, he's kind of clumsy and no one, he's not very popular as it is. And so you got to think in his mind, if he tells people about his parents, like maybe he's afraid they'll make fun of him more or maybe like, like, oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, your parents lost their mind. You're not very good at stuff. Like, but like, like his grandma said, he should be proud of them. Like they, they got into their state by defying Lord Voldemort. And so now a few people are able to see exactly what happened to them and like how they, like what type of mindset they're left in. She couldn't even make real words or noises. Like they're just, they're almost what it remind me of it's like what happens to people after Dementor suck their soul out but like they can still move and like make noises and stuff so it's like it's just like nothing's going on in the brain like it's just like empty there so it's just and one of those things that's incurable it's not something that they can do anything about like they're just a shell they're a shell with a body and you know her face was like gaunt and thin and all that because they probably don't know how to eat correctly or any sort of you know, activity, exercise, or anything. They're just, they're just basically living until they die. Like, they're just, they're just kind of sitting there until, you know, time takes them away. It's kind of really yeah, sad. Uh, sorry, quick thing I was going to ask you. Like, honestly, for me, like, I don't feel bad for anyone except for Neville. Because, and think about it, he's the one that almost complains the least. Like, you, I think part of that definitely is because he's not exactly one of the main characters. But at the same time, like, think of all he's been through. Like, I mean, he's been through so much, like being raised by his grandmother. You know, his parents weren't there and they were really, you know, because of they were in the line of duty. Like, let's face it, like they were it's not just because they were like drug addicts and strung out because they weren't being good parents to Neville. Like they were doing something that they were doing to really protect everybody. And he's been through a lot and you never see him complain and at the same time, you always see him sticking up for his friends. Even going back to Sorcerer's Stone, like where he stood up against Harry, Ron, and Hermione just because he was trying to do what's good for the school. And at the same time, I, I also feel bad for him because he's not exactly the most talented kid in the world, which leads to the fact that like, he's a little bit socially awkward because he's not... It's very easy for like a bully at the school to pick an easy target uh, of him. And... and that's what people don't think about a lot is really like Neville as some of the biggest perseverance I would say out of any of the characters of the book based on what he's been through and so mad respect for him and I think that's part of why we love this series so much is there's minor details and like how you were saying characters that aren't even necessarily the main part of the story where you really grow attached to like, I'm not going to lie, like, Neville's not really one of my favorites, by all means. But it's things like that, where it's, like, you really almost become attached to him because you feel the emotion that he has gone through just by hearing from, like, his parents. Like, that's just a, such a tough family lifestyle. 
is what I would say about that. Couldn't agree more, man. Right there with you. Just kind of goes to show what we were talking about earlier, but, you know, these side characters still find a way to make an impact on us no matter what. So, great writing. Yeah. Great writing. But I'll take us into take our final away. chapter for the day, man, yeah. the chapter 24, Occlumency. The first paragraph, is, I think, is very, very important because it, it keeps foreshadowing Creature and this whole, like, hey, like, I mean, when you're reading it for the first time, when I read this as a kid, this, this didn't stand out to me really at all until after mm-hmm. I read the book and then I went through it again. I was like, oh, this was leading up. So Creature, it transpired, had been lurking in the attic. Sirius said that he had found him up there covered in dust, covered in dust, Covered in dust, people. <laughs> no doubt why. looking for more relics of the Black family to hide in his cupboard. Though Sirius seemed satisfied with his story, it made Harry uneasy. Creature had seemed to be in a better mood on his reappearance. His bitter muttering had subsided somewhat, and he submitted to orders more docilely than usual. Though once or twice, Harry caught the house off staring avidly at him, always looking away quickly when he saw that Harry had noticed. So, there's some... There's some tomfoolery going around there with Mr. Creature there. So, uh, page 517. Professor Snape arrives at Grimwald Place to tell Harry he's going to be taking occlumency classes to help close off his mind. And basically what occlumency classes are, so, I mean, I know I kind of put it succinctly there, closing off your mind, but you realize when he dreams, he gets these visions and stuff. What they're trying to do is prevent that from happening. So how can we get it so my mind's closed completely so I don't get any visions of Voldemort, Voldemort can't get any visions of me, we don't have any sort of connection... Like, how do we do that? Well, Dumbledore comes up with this idea. We're going to take occlumency classes, and we're going to try having Snape close off your mind. And now, it's tough because Snape and Harry don't like each other. They've got a very rocky, turbulent relationship. So of all the teachers to teach him, why is that to be Snape? Well, Professor Lupin actually says, in a little bit down the road here, that Snape is a superb occlumens, which is really important because... There's a reason why Snape needs to be great at closing off his mind. And I'll leave that where that is. So, time to go further from there. On page 518, Snape really goads Sirius. Like, tries to get into him by insinuating he's not doing anything useful. Like, he gets right on him. All that. Like, you know, they already had their, they've had their differences since high school. So Sirius and Snape hate each other worse than Snape and Harry hate each other. Like, those guys really don't like each other. So... He said, I mean, this is what he actually said to, uh, <laughs> to this is what Snape said to Sirius. Uh, Merely that I am sure you must feel uh, frustrated by the fact that you cannot do anything useful for the Order. Like, he's like literally trying to get underneath <laughs> Sirius' skin, and it, it really works, honestly. Um, on page 520, I'm actually going to read the full page here, because this is where like a big, yeah. big old problem almost pops off here. So, anyways, this is when uh, uh, Sirius and Snape kind of get into it. He goes, I'll get to the point then, said Sirius standing up. He was rather taller than Snape, who, Harry noticed, had balled his fist in the pocket of his cloak over what Harry was sure was the handle of his wand. If I hear you using these occlumency lessons to give Harry a hard time, you'll have to answer to me. How touching, Snape sneered, but surely you have noticed that Harry, how Potter is very like his father? Yes, I have, said Sirius proudly. Well, then you'll know he's so arrogant that criticism simply bounces off him, said Snape sleekly. Sirius pushed his chair roughly aside and strode around the table towards Snape, pulling out his wand as he went, and Snape whipped out his own, and they were squaring up to each other, Sirius looking livid, Snape calculating, his eyes darting from Sirius's wand tip to his face. Sirius, said Harry loudly, but Sirius appeared not to hear him. I've warned you, Snivellus, said Sirius, his face barely a foot from Snape's. I don't care if Dumbledore thinks you're reformed. I know better. Oh, but why don't you tell him so, whispered Snape. 
Or are you afraid he might not take the advice of a man who's been hiding inside his mother's house for six months very seriously? Tell me, how is Lucius Malfoy these days? I expect he's delighted to have his lap dog working at Hogwarts, isn't he? Speaking of dogs, said Snape softly, did you know that Lucius Malfoy recognized you the last time you risked your little jaunt outside? Clever idea, Black, getting yourself seen on a safe station platform. Gave you a cast-iron excuse not to leave your little hidey hole in the future, didn't it? Sirius raised his wand. No! Harry yelled, vaulting over the table, trying to get in between them. Sirius Stone, are you calling me a coward? Roared Sirius, trying to push Harry out of the way, but Harry would not budge. Why, yes, I suppose I am. Harry, get out of it! Snarled Sirius, pushing him out of the way with his free hand. The kitchen door opened, and the entire Weasley family, plus Hermione, came inside, looking very happy with Mr. Weasley walking proudly in their midst, dressed in a pair of striped pajamas covered by a Macintosh. Cured! He announced brightly to the kitchen at large. Completely cured. And he and all the other Weasleys froze on the threshold, gazing at the scene in front of them, which was also suspended in mid-action, both with Sirius and Snape looking towards the door with their wands pointing at each other's faces and Harry immobile between them, a hand stretched out to each trying to force them apart. So, yeah, that was that was big. They almost had a little duel right there. They almost went uh, through down in the kitchen. <laughs> but Snape, <laughs> it, this this actually builds up to what happens in future events in this book because not only is Sirius already feeling these kind of like useless, he feels like he's useless. People are rubbing in his face now, you know, yeah. like right. Like Snape is like getting right on him about it, like really kind of getting to the crux of the matter. Mrs. Weasley and Hermione are always telling him, "No, listen to Dumbledore, stay put. You're being reckless. Don't do this." And then Dumbledore is like, "No, man, kind of got to chill for now." And Snape's like, "Yeah, just listen to Dumbledore and chill because you can't do anything useful, you little coward." And then like at some point, you're gonna boil over and it's gonna explode. So, like, I get right. why what happens happens later on, but this just all leads up to the big boiling over point. So, anyways, uh, the, the good news is, is Mr. Weasley is fully cured, which is great. <laughs> and then uh, on page 523, I'm going to read the first paragraph talking about uh, well, you know, how Snape continued to survey him through page 30 here. So, this is going to be like a seven-page... Wait, no, I apologize. I messed up. I, I'm a little bit too far ahead of myself. I'm going to read the first paragraph about Harry not wanting to know the next time he would see Sirius because this is a foreshadow. And mm-hmm. it's really sad, too, when you hear like the last sentence I'll say before I turn it over to Chase. I'm going to go ahead and, and go here with you. But anyways, after a hurried breakfast, they pulled on jackets and scarves against the chilly gray January morning. Harry had a pleasant, constricted sensation in his chest, and he did not want to say goodbye to Sirius. He had a bad feeling about this parting. Well, I'm going to pause there. I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to pause there. He had a bad feeling about this parting. He did not know when they would see each other again and felt that it was incumbent upon him to say something to Sirius to stop him from doing anything stupid. Harry was worried that Snape's accusation of cowardice had stung Sirius so badly he might now even be planning some foolhardy trip beyond Grimmauld Place. Before he could even think of what to say, however, Sirius beckoned him to his side. I want you to take this, he said quietly, thrusting a badly wrapped package roughly the size of a paperback book into Harry's hand. What is it? It's a way of letting me know if Snape is giving you a hard time. No, don't open it here, said Sirius with a wary look at Mrs. Weasley, who was trying to persuade the twins to wear hand-knitted mittens. I doubt Molly would approve, but I want you to use it if you need me, all right? Okay, said Harry, stowing the package away inside the pocket of his jacket, but he knew he would never use whatever it was. It would not be he, Harry who lured Sirius from his place of safety, 
no matter how foully Snape treated him in their forthcoming acclimacy classes. Let me sink that last sentence in real quick. It would not be he, Harry, who lured Sirius from his place of safety. I don't know, man. Yeah, Funny how uh... the turns table, as they say in the office. <laughs> but <laughs> it's sad. It's a big foreshadow. And I get I get why Harry feels uh, at, at fault later on during this as well. So... With that, brother, I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, man, it's uh, we're starting to get into the nitty gritty. Well, we've been in the nitty gritty, but <laughs> it's all yeah. We can always say that so many times, like you know what I mean. We can always say that so many times. Like yes, we're, we we've been in the middle of it. Like we can't <laughs> keep telling them we're getting there. It. Yeah, we're <laughs> been in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that that's really foreshadowing for a massive uh, part coming up uh, a few for weeks sure. from now. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I had is, you know, they're all kind of getting back on the night books bus to go back to Hogwarts, right? And Tonks, I thought this was cool. She like shouts at him. Uh, she says, if you say his name, I will curse you into oblivion. And it was, um... To Stan <laughs> so, Shunpike, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. Um, but of course, you know, I'm a Snape guy. Uh, so you're definitely a serious guy. It's funny how we always sit kind of on the interesting opposite sides of the fence on some things (laughs) um so of course i thought this was cool like as they were on the night bus on page 526 and 525 like it it just keeps saying like bang bang from where you know it kind of takes us back to that azkaban moment but as they're like stopping and going like it's throwing them forward almost like if you have a terrible driver that's driving the bus like how can you sleep on the night bus when it's like that right um, and then, uh, so, and they actually stop uh, at Hogsmeade first, and then they finally get back, which uh, Harry tells uh, the DA, so the DA being Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's army, that he can't, uh, can't meet tonight because he has to take remedial potions, is what he's calling it, for a clumency, yeah. which it took me a minute to actually learn that name. Jay Nelly helped me out with that. At first, I was like, "Oculency, that's great. That's interesting. Oracle style." No, it's the exact <laughs> opposite. <laughs> Occlumency. Uh, so, and then at this point is uh, on five twenty-eight. You know, kind of more foreshadowing here is uh, kind of loosens up his buttons, baby. Here he runs into Joe again, and um, basically what happens here is you know they're setting up for something that comes up uh, next week that we'll talk about. And she goes, had a good Christmas, asked Cho. Yeah, not bad, said Harry. Mine was pretty quiet, said Cho. For some reason, she was looking rather embarrassed. Mm. There's another Hogsmeade trip next month. Did you see the notice? What? Oh, oh, no, I haven't checked the notice board since I got back. Yes, it's on Valentine's Day. Right, said Harry, wondering why she was telling him this. Well, I was supposed you want to. Only if you do, she said eagerly. Harry stared. He had been about to say, I suppose you want to know when the next DA meeting is. But her response did not seem fit. Uh, uh, He said, oh, it's okay if you don't, she said, looking mortified. Don't worry, I'll I'll see you around. She walked away. Harry stood staring after her, his brain working frantically. Then something clunked into place. Cho! Hey, Cho! He ran after her, catching her halfway up the marble staircase. Or... 
Do you want to come to Hogsmeade with me on Valentine's Day? Ooh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, she said, blushing crimson and beaming at him. Right, well, that's settled then, said Harry, and a feeling that that day was not going to be complete loss after all. He headed off to the library to pick up Ron and Hermione before their afternoon lessons, walking in rather bouncy way himself. <laughs> so, like, now we see it's a bit big foreshadowing with those two, but it kind of reminded me, I guess, of, like, how we were talking earlier, like, when you're younger, like, you almost, like, don't know how to respond to things or what's going on. Uh, definitely got Harry in the moment there. Um, but the good news is... choice of words. Yeah. yeah. The man. good news is he has an official date for Valentine's Day with her. So now they've got, instead of crying under mistletoes, kissing faces while, like, wet and nasty, they've got a nice official date set for Valentine's Day. We'll see how that goes later on, but they at least have it set as of now. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and continue on, brother. <laughs> oh, no, great stuff, man. Um, and then, so... After this, so Harry goes, of course, into Snape's class. This is on page 529 uh, for a clemency. And uh, so it says, so <laughs> it was a shadowy room lined with shelves bearing hundreds of glass jars in which floated slimy bits of animals and plants suspended in various colored potions. In a corner stood the cupboard full of ingredients that Snape had once accused Harry not without reason of robbing. Harry's attention was drawn towards the desk, however, where a shallow stone basin engraved with runes and symbols lay in a pool of candlelight. Harry recognized it at once, Dumbledore's Pensieve. Wondering what on earth it was doing here, he jumped when Snape's cold voice came out of the corner. Shut the door behind you, Potter. Harry did as he was told with a horrible feeling that he was imprisoning himself as he did so. When he turned back to face the room Snape had moved into the light, and was pointing silently at the chair opposite his desk. Harry sat down and so did Snape, his cold black eyes fixed unblinkingly upon Harry, dislike etched in every line of his face. Well, Potter, you know why you're here, he said. The headmaster had asked me to teach you a clemency. I can only hope that you prove more adept at it than potions. Right, said Harry tersely. This may not be your ordinary class, Potter said Snape, his eyes narrowed malevolently, malevolently, but I am still your teacher, and you will still therefore call me sir or professor at all times. Yes, sir, said Harry. Snape continued to survey him through narrowed eyes for a moment, and then said, Now, a clumency. As I told you back in your dear godfather's kitchen, this branch of magic seals the mind against magical intrusion and influence. And why does Professor Dumbledore think I need it, sir? Said Harry, looking directly into Snape's dark, cold eyes and wondering whether he would answer. Snape looked back at him for a moment and then said, Contemptuously, Surely even you could have worked that out by now, Potter. The Dark Lord is highly skilled at legalmency. What is that, sir? It's the ability to extract feelings and memories from another person's mind. He can read minds said Harry quickly, his worst fears confirmed. You have no subtility, Potter, said Snape, his dark eyes glittering. You do not understand fine distinctions. It is one of the shortcomings that makes you such a lamentable po potion maker. Snape paused for a moment, apparently to savor the pleasure of insulting Harry before continuing. Only muggles talk of mind reading. 
The mind is not a book to be opened at will and examined at leisure. Thoughts are not etched on inside of skulls to be impursed by any invader. The mind is a complex and many-layered thing, Potter. Or at least most minds are, he smirked. It is true, however, that those who have master legilimency are able, under certain conditions, to delve into the mind of their victims and to interpret their findings correctly. The Dark Lord, for instance, almost always knows when somebody is lying to him. Only those skilled at occlumency are able to shut down those feelings and memories that contradict the lie, and so utter falsehoods in his presence without detection. Whatever Snape said, legilimency sounded like mind-reading to Harry, and he did not like the sound of it at all. So he could know what we're thinking right now, sir? The Dark Lord is a considerable distance. The walls of the grounds of Hogwarts are guarded by many ancient spells and charms to ensure the bodily and mentally safety of those who dwell within them, said Snape. Time and space matter in magic, Potter. Eye contact is often essential in legilimency. Well, then why do I have to learn occlumency? Snape eyed Harry, tracing his mouth with one long, thin finger as he did so. The usual rules do not seem to apply with you, Potter. The curse that failed to kill you seems to have forged some kind of connection between you and the Dark Lord. The evidence suggests that at times when your mind is most relaxed and vulnerable, when you are asleep, for instance, you are sharing the Dark Lord's thoughts and emotions. The Headmaster thinks it's inadvisable for this to continue. He wishes me to teach you how close your mind to the Dark Teach how, teach you how close how to close your mind to the Dark Lord. Harry's heart was pumping fast again. None of this was adding up, added up. But why does Professor Dumbledore want to stop it? He asked abruptly. I don't like it much, but it's useful, hasn't it? I mean, I saw that snake attack Mr. Weasley, and if I hadn't, Professor, Professor Dumbledore wouldn't have had wouldn't have been able to save him, would he, sir? Snape stared at Harry for a few moments, still tracing his mouth with his finger. When he spoke again, it was slowly and deliberating, as though he weighed every word. It appears the Dark Lord has been unaware of the connection between you and himself until very recently. Up till now, it seems that you have been experiencing his emotions and sharing his thoughts without his being any the wiser. However, the vision you had shortly before Christmas... The one with the snake and Mr. Hold on, Weasley. I want to I stop right there because I have a question. I have a question yeah, about what he just said there. Because mm-hmm. now that I'm thinking about it from the opposite side, as someone who read the books right all the way through, uh-huh. when he says, it appears that the Dark Lord has been unaware of the connection between you and himself until very recently. And even before that line, it says he was like tracing his like his like his mouth with his like finger. Mm-hmm. Do you think Snape learned that from Dumbledore or from... The other person that the Dark Lord figured out who like, like he finally was able to uh, use the connection like he figured out that the connection existed like do you think Snape Dumbledore told Snape that or do you think Snape got that information elsewhere that's a great question because that's funny you said that because I was thinking the same thing <laughs> as I was reading this I just figured it was too that's a very good point because I was thinking you would have to say and this really causes a almost like a great debate but the problem is it's 
there's not enough evidence to and like it. we can't do it either because like we would be giving away everything <laughs> like yeah you can't like you literally can't i just like but you know where i'm going with it though right like the, the, like I, oh very I, much so i just very feel yeah I, I feel like because of the way he was like doing like the hand motions kind of was like hmm, how should i answer this like it seems like the dark lord has finally become aware like as if he didn't wasn't sure he should say it so like, to me does that mean like maybe it's not you know he's not getting it from dumbledore who just kind of told snape the information and snape's like oh, okay well i guess i can tell harry this like no i think like i really think he might have gotten that piece of information elsewhere on his own so i was thinking the exact same thing and, and i think people forget too. remember dumbledore sent snape on that task right like all summer um i i think so too i don't think he learned this from dumbledore i i think dumbledore brought up the idea of a clemency and wanted him to teach him right but i think dumbledore trusted the fact that he knew snape knew what he was doing and i think you bring up a really good point here because i think I think he's debating how to answer this without giving away information. I agree. And that's, we'll leave it at that. That's my thought. Yeah, I, <laughs> Stepping I on the line. <laughs> Stepping on the line, man. <laughs> Surfing the line there. Yep. It's good stuff. I'll tell you what, because um, I was reading a lot there. You want to take over from here? Sure you thing, can take bro. Over from here. Yes, yep. sir. So he said, however, the vision you had shortly before Christmas... The one with the snake and Mr. Weasley? Do not interrupt me, Potter, said Snape in a dangerous tone. As I was saying, the vision you had shortly before Christmas represented such a powerful incursion upon the Dark Lord's thoughts. I saw inside the snake's head, not his. I thought I just told you not to interrupt me, Potter. But Harry did not care if Snape was angry. At last, he seemed to be getting to the bottom of this business. He had moved forward in his chair so that without realizing it, he was perched on the very edge as though poised for flight. How come I saw through the snake's eyes if it's Voldemort's thoughts I'm sharing? Do not say the Dark Lord's name, spat Snape. There was a nasty silence. They glared at each other across the pensive. Professor Dumbledore says his name, says Harry quietly. Dumbledore is an extremely powerful wizard, Snape muttered. And while he may feel secure enough to use that name, the rest of us, he rubbed his left forearm, apparently unconsciously on the spot Harry knew the dark mark was burned into his skin. I just wanted to know, began again, forcing his voice to politeness, why... You seem to have visited the snake's mind because that was where the Dark Lord was at that particular moment. He was possessing the snake at that time, and so you dreamed you were inside it too. And uh, he realized I was there? It seems so, said Snape coolly. How do you know, said Harry urgently. Is this just Professor Dumbledore guessing, or... I told you, said Snape, rigid in his chair, his eyes slits to call me sir. Yes, sir. He said impatiently, but how do you know? It's enough that we know, said Snape repressively. So this kind of actually supports my point here, because he's trying to avoid how he knows. You know what I mean? Right. Like, he's trying to, like, he's like, he's like repressively, like, saying this stuff. Yeah, he's like, the important point is that the Dark Lord is now aware that you are gaining access to his thoughts and feelings. He has also deduced that the process is likely to work in reverse. That is to say, he has realized that he may be able to access your thoughts and feelings in return. And he tried to make he tried to make, make me do things, sir. He added hurriedly. He might," said Snape, sounding cold and unconcerned. Which brings us back to occlumency. So that's some really important stuff there. It kind of takes us into this new thing, like you know, just a couple, because it, it's not paramount for me to read everything that goes up into it. I'll, I'll read what happens when the spell hits Harry, but like 
this, the point why that was important, it gives us the backstory on what occlumency is, why it's important, and why specifically uh, he needs to learn how to close off his mind now that Voldemort has become aware of the connection between them, right? Right. So, now, in page three, 534, Snape attempts, uh, attempts to invade Harry's thoughts before Harry is ready, and that's kind of messed up, because he kind of just hits him with it real fast. So, uh, he, he said, brace yourself now. Legimens, and then like Snape had struck before Harry was ready. So, uh, anyways, you know, we start to kind of see uh, all these old flashes of old memories come to the forefront of Harry's mind, and uh, Harry accidentally hit Snape with a stinging curse to kind of like get him off him. And Harry's and Snape basically tells him like, "Use your mind to repel me, not your wand." Right? And he's like, basically, Harry's like, "Dude, this is my first time ever. Like, what the heck? Like, leave me alone." <laughs> <laughs> like, but. Uh, Anyway, so what I'm going to read here is from on page 536, one page here, and I'll turn it over to Chase, is uh, I'm going to read from the part where he says, I told you to empty yourself of emotion. Yeah? Well, I'm finding that hard at the moment, Harry snarled. Then you will find yourself easy prey for the Dark Lord, said Snape savagely. Fools who wear their hearts proudly on their sleeves, who cannot control their emotions, who wallow in sad memories and allow themselves to be provoked this easily... Weak people, in other words, they stand no chance against his powers. He will penetrate your mind with ease, with absurd ease, Potter. I am not weak, said Harry in a low voice, fury now pumping through him, so as though he might attack Snape at any moment. Then prove it. Master yourself. Control your anger. Discipline your mind. We shall try again. Get ready now. Legolamins! And he was watching Uncle Vernon hammering the, letter, the letterbox shot. A hundred Dementors were drifting across the lake in the grounds towards him. He was running along, alongside a windowless passage Mr. Weasley. They were drawing nearer to the plain black door at the end of the corridor. Harry expected to go through it, but Mr. Weasley led him off to the left, down a flight of stone steps. I know, I know, he was on all four again in Snape's office. His scar was prickling unpleasantly, but the voice that had just issued from his mouth was triumphant. He pushed himself up again to find Snape, staring at him, wand raised. It looked though as this time, Snape had lifted the spell before Harry even tried to fight back. What happened then, Potter? He asked, eyeing Harry intently. I saw. I remembered. I've just realized. Realized what? Said Snape sharply. Harry did not answer at once. He was still savoring the moment of blinding realization as he rubbed his forehead. He had been dreaming about a windowless corridor ending in a locked door for months, without once realizing that it was a real place. Now, seeing the memory again... He knew all along that he had been dreaming about the corridor down which he had run with Mr. Weasley on the 12th of August as they hurried to the courtrooms to the ministry. It was the corridor leading to the Department of Ministry of Mysteries, and Mr. Weasley had been there the night, and he had been attacked by Voldemort's snake. He looked up at Snape. What's in the Department of Mysteries? What did you say? Snape asked quietly, and Harry saw with deep satisfaction that Snape was unnerved. I said, what's in the Department of Mysteries? Sir, Harry said, and why would you ask such a thing? Because, said Harry, watching Snape's face closely, that corridor I've just seen, I've been dreaming about it for months. I've just recognized it. It leads to the Department of Mysteries, and I think Voldemort wants something from, I have told you not to say the Dark Lord's name. They glared at each other. Harry's scar seared again, but he did not care. Snape looked agitated, and when he spoke, he sounded as though he was trying to appear cool and unconcerned. There are many things in the Department of Mysteries, Potter, few of which you would understand, and none of which concern you. Do I make myself plain? Yes, said Harry, still rubbing his prickling scar, which is becoming more painful. I want you back here, same time on Wednesday, and we will continue work then. Fine, said Harry. 
He was desperate to get out of Snape's office and find Ron and Hermione. So, this is pretty big stuff here. He figured out the dreams he was having all year, all summer, the long dark corridors. He knows where it is. The Department of Mysteries. The full circles are finally starting to come around, baby. As we are really starting huge. to put the Rubik's Cube together. Things are in place to be uh, explained of what happens here shortly. But uh, to go ahead and have you finish this off for the day in terms of our uh, impact moments, brother, I'll let you take from, you know, whatever you want to from here. I'm on, I'm on page 539. I don't know where you're at, but do your thing, man. Yeah, that, that's right where I am. Like, cool. really the bottom of 538 uh, with the scar. But um, I, I did want to ask this question. So going looking at the American edition, so the front cover, which I'm really talking about the dust cover, the front cover is really just like you know, plain, yeah. <laughs> but looking at the dust cover, this, uh, on the American edition in the British version, of course you see the Phoenix and in the back you do have the, the gold fountain from the department of mysteries, uh, or sorry, the ministry, I mean, from the ministry that you talked about, but on the front American edition, like you see Harry with these candles, is that him in the corridor? I've always wondered that. Yeah, that's that- that's that's him in the Department of Mysteries for sure. Because like when he gets to that point where he's got to figure out what door to go through, remember like later on, I not that doesn't really right. give anything away, so I can say that, right? So yeah. like yeah, like that yes, the, that is him at the Department of Mysteries. That's what I always thought. I just wanted to make sure I was right because it's it's an interesting visual. Like all you really see is the candles. Like it definitely gives that kind of eerie feeling about it there's a there's a door there too if i'm not mistaken i i, I don't i don't want to grab my book because it'll knock over the visual here but uh, I, I believe there's a door as well uh, on it yeah but. yeah that makes sense i think the door yeah the door might be on the other side of the the cover but that's a, that's a really good point you made um so kind of just uh i'll you know taking this till the end and then i'll let you close us out here um so it says harry found ron and hermione in the library where they were working on Umbridge's most recent ream of homework. Other students, nearly all of them fifth years, sat at lamp-lit uh, tables nearby, noses, closed books, quills scratching feverishly. While the sky outside mullioned, windows grew steadily blacker. The only other sound was the slight squeaking of one of Madame Pence's shoes as the librarian prowled the aisles menacingly, breathing down the necks of those touching her precious books. Harry felt shivery. His scar was still aching. He felt almost feverish. When he sat down opposite of Ron and Hermione, he caught sight of himself in the window opposite. He was very white and his scar seemed to be showing up more clearly than usual. How did it go? Hermione whispered and then looking concerned. Are you all right, Harry? Yeah, I'm fine. I don't know, said Harry impatiently, wincing as pain shot through his scar again. Listen, I've just realized something. And he told them what he had just seen and deduced. So, so are you saying, whispered Ron, as Madame Pence swept past, squeakingly slightly, that the weapon, the thing you know, you know who's after, is the Ministry of Magic? In the Department of Mysteries, it's got to be, Harry whispered. I saw the door when your dad took me down to the courtrooms of my hearing, and it's definitely the same one he was guarding with when the snake bit him. Hermione let out a long, slow sigh. Of course, she breathed. Of course what? said Ron rather impatiently. Ron, think about it. 
Sturgis Podmore was trying to get through a door at the Ministry of Magic. It must have been that one. It's too much of a coincidence. How come Sturgis was trying to break in when he's on our side, said Ron. Well, I don't know, Hermione admitted. That is a bit odd. So what's in the Department of Mysteries? Harry asked Ron. Has your dad ever mentioned anything about it? I know they call the people who work there unspeakables, said Ron, frowning, because no one really seems to know what they do in there. Weird place to have a weapon. It's not weird at all. It makes perfect sense, said Hermione. It will be something top secret that the Ministry has been developing, I expect. Harry, are you sure you're all right? Ferrari had just run both his hands hard over his forehead, as though trying to iron it. Yeah, fine, he said, lowering his hands, which were trembling. I just feel a bit... I don't like occlumency much. I expect anyone would feel shaky if they had their mind attacked over and over again, said Hermione sympathetically. Look, let's get back to the common room. We'll be a bit more comfortable there. But the common room was packed and full of shrieks of laughter and excitement. Fred and George were demonstrating their latest bit of joke shop merchandise. Headless hats, <laughs> shouted George as Fred waved a pointed at, decorated with fluffy pink feather at watching students. Two galleons each. Watch Fred now. Fred swept the hat onto his head, beaming. For a second, he merely looked rather stupid. Then both hat and head vanished. Several girls screamed, but everyone else was roaring with laughter. And off again, shouted George, and Fred's hand groped for a moment in what seemed to be thin air over his shoulder, and his head reappeared as he swept the pink-feathered hat from, from it again. How do those hats work, then? said Hermione, distracted from her homework and watching Fred and George closely. I mean, obviously, it's some kind of invisibility spell, but it's rather clever to have extended the field of invisibility beyond the boundaries of the charmed object. I'd imagine the charm wouldn't have a very long life, though. Harry did not answer. He was still feeling ill. Feeling Ill. I'm going to have to do this tomorrow, he muttered, pushing the books. He had just taken out, out of his bag back inside it. Well, write it in your homework planner, then, said Hermione encouragingly, so you don't forget. Harry and Ron exchanged looks as he reached into the bag and withdrew the planner and opened it tentatively. Don't leave it till later, you big second raider, chided the book as Harry scribbled down Umbridge's homework. Hermione beamed at it. I think I'll go to bed, said Harry, stuffing the homework planner back into his bag and making a mental note to drop it into the fire the first opportunity he got. He walked across <laughs> the common room, dodging George, who tried to put a headless hat on him and reached the pace of a cool of the stone staircase to the boys' dormitories. He was feeling sick again, just as he had the night before, the night he had had the vision of the snake, but thought that if he could just lie down for a while, he would be all right. He opened the door of his dormitory and was one step inside it when he experienced pain so severe he thought that someone had have sliced into the top of his head. He did not know where he was, whether he was standing or lying down. He did not even know his own name. Maniacal laughter was ringing in his ears. He was happier than he had been in a very long time. Jubilant, ecstatic, triumphant, a wonderful, wonderful thing had happened. Harry. Harry. Someone had hit him around the face. The insane laughter was punctuated with a cry of pain. The happiness was draining out of him, but the laughter continued. He opened his eyes as he did so. He became aware that the wild laughter was coming out of his own mouth. 
The moment he realized this, it died away. Harry lay panting on the floor, staring up at the ceiling, the scar on his forehead throbbing horribly. Ron was bending over him, looking very worried. What happened? He said. I, I don't know. Harry gasped, sitting up again. He's really happy. Really happy. You know who is? Something good's happened, mumbled Harry. He was shaking as badly as he had done after seeing the snake attack Mr. Weasley had and felt very sick. Something he's been hoping for. The words came just as they had back in the Gryffindor changing room, as though a stranger was speaking them through Harry's mouth. Yet he knew they were very, they were true. He took deep breaths, willing himself not to vomit all over Ron. He was very glad that Dean and Seamus were not here to watch this time. Hermione told me to come and check on you, said Ron, in a low voice, helping Harry to his feet. She says your defenses will be low at the moment, after Snape's been fiddling around with your mind. Still, I suppose it'll help in the long run, won't it? He looked doubtfully at Harry as he helped him toward bed. Harry nodded, nodded without any conviction and slumped back on his pillow. Aching all over from, fall, from having fallen to the floor so often that evening, his scar still prickling painfully. He could not help feeling that his first foray into occlumency had weakened his mind resistance rather than strengthening it, and he wondered, with a feeling of great trepidation, what had happened to make Lord Voldemort the happiest he had been in 14 years. Yeah, man, it's uh, some dark stuff now. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. In the words of Evanescence... They're going under. <laughs> yeah, this is getting. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting pretty, pretty deep into this stuff now. So, uh, yeah, man, you want to uh, kind of break us down from here? Not quite. Yeah, we gotta go over our interesting fact and our potential plot holes. But oh yeah, um, yeah, interesting <laughs> facts, plot holes. Mm-hmm. So the only, but the good thing is I didn't really have any plot holes other than what we already mentioned, which was like, mm-hmm. what could what could have been the cover story that Dumbledore got Mister Weasley out of being at the Ministry at that point in time, out of his department. So that's the only one I really have. Someone's got to explain that to me because I don't think we you know. Like I said, unless Fudge was on Dumbledore's like team, like he was in the beginning, he was avidly against Dumbledore, and he knows the Weasleys are you know kind of in league with Dumbledore. So I really don't see him getting. Mr. Weasley out of that situation that easily. So uh, that was the only plot hole that I had. In terms of my interesting fact, it was just a small one on uh, Urquhart Raquero. And he actually was like the uh, portrait that was in Mr. Weasley's ward in St. Mungo's magical uh, maladies and injuries and all that fun stuff. So I'm going to talk a little bit about him and then I'll turn it over to you for your interesting fact and we'll, we'll bounce on out of here for the day. So... Urquhart Ricaro was a wizard healer and the inventor of the entrail expelling curse. His portrait hung in the Di Llewellyn ward in St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. So he he's actually someone that is of great note. Like think about all the people who have portraits places. Like Donald was saying, like people have such a great like they did such great things during their lifetime that they have portraits hung in multiple places of importance, right? Well, this guy, he he invented that spell, which is wildly impressive, especially if you think about what that spell is, the entrail expelling curse. It's kind of gross, but uh, it caused one's entrails to be expelled from their body 
uh, to expel blockages, like so in your intestines, like you know how you know polyps can develop and like there could be stuff that's stuck in your intestines. It's, it's basically like a magical enema, but like except it blasts your entire entrails shit out of it. So it's a little bit <laughs> funny. Up. That's all I wanted to talk about is our boy Urquhart Ricaro and him being a healer uh, during that time period, having his little. Uh, portrait on the wall there wanted to tell you guys what he was famous for and what that uh spell really did it's basically a magical enema but more nasty and more explosive so with that i'll give it to you to get us your interesting fact and then we'll we'll close on out yeah man no that was that was awesome that was great stuff uh, my interesting fact here i've actually held for a while uh which is pretty cool it's not too long um josh went really into what the floor plans are at saint mungo's hospital what I'm going to do for my interesting fact is mention one major uh, character that has been in each floor for a particular reason. So pretty interesting here. Uh, so going to the ground floor, you know, we mentioned that the ground floor here is the reception, of course, and it's often used for artifact accidents. So often filled with wizards and witches, of course, faced with strange ailments uh, such as hands sprouting out of their chest and steam pouring out of their mouths right and you'll see the healers that are there wearing those lime green robes that we talked about today um, artifacts accidents uh, we mentioned before just a reminder there it's cauldron explosions uh, wands backfiring broom crashes stuff like that that actually happens with these artifacts that people are using on the first floor so um we actually have uh, treatment for creatures there. So um, <laughs> Arthur Weasley, of course, is the one I'll just mention here that we talked about, was admitted there for the snake bite. On the second floor, it houses uh, magical bugs um, and, of course, magical ailments such as diseases such as dragon pox that we've talked about before, uh, vanishing sickness, and scorfungalus. So as far as... Uh, the first cases that were talked about on this floor, actually, um, one of the first cases that ever happened were uh, Peruvian viper roots with uh, Chaucy Oldridge, who is like an old patient uh, that caught basically being attacked by these viper roots in 1379. And uh, they developed the cure in the 16th century. Um, and uh, also the vanishing sickness, just so you know what that is, that's where your body parts randomly disappear. Um, the first wizard to experience this was Xavier Ratstick, who is a famous entertainer who vanished in 1836 during a tap dance routine and was never seen again. Um, Scorfungalus uh, was a contagious disease spread by unknown magical bugs in 1989, um, and they had a Scorfungalus outbreak at Hogwarts, actually, that caused all the bugs in the hospital wing to be filled. It's almost like bed bugs. That is nasty. Um, the third floor, you have the treatment of potions, plant poisoning, uh, dresses, rashes, reg uh, regurgitation, uncontrollable, uh, giggling, and more. Um, not very many known people have been in there. Uh, fourth floor, you know, they mentioned that Janus Thickey. That's the Janus Thickey ward, which we've talked about before um, with, you know, some of the creatures and that sort of thing. Um, the long-term residents of the ward, of course, are for permanent spell damage, hexes, jinxes, curses, and incorrectly applied charms. Um, Herbert Corley had a botched imperious curse. Frank and Alice, we mentioned, were there as far as 
then on the fifth floor, uh, you had visitors um, from the tea room, the hospital shop, gift shop for patients and break room. So it's just basically, you know, like a, a nice floor to just get away from all that uh, break room, basically. Um, notable staff members for you before we finish up here. Omar Abbasi, he actually specialized in creature induced injuries. Um, he was a frequent contact of actually Mathilda Grimblehawk, uh, who was in the Department of Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, the Beast Division, and of uh, Mungo Bonham, which is uh, the 1500s and, and 1600s founder of the hospital. So just some cool, interesting facts there. And uh, with that, I'll let uh, Jay Nelly break us down, man. All righty, guys. Well, this one's been fun today. We already told you what we needed to tell you about uh, our, our show and where to find us earlier. So right now, we're just going to tell you, have a good one, and we'll see you next week. Because, you know, this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing, signing off. off.